Hey, I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. Today we're talking about the Brain Scrambler, pun intended, Broadcast Signal Intrusion, or BSI, now streaming on Shudder. I mean, we, we are probably going to get our brain scrambled later. Probably. Probably right in the next segment. <laughs> For those of you who like conspiracy theories and creepy unsolved mysteries, uh, BSI is a throwback to the Max Headroom signal hijackings that took place in the late 80s uh, that really happened. Rather you're familiar with that case or not, stay tuned because we have a lot of knowledge to fill your heads with as we are joined by the director himself, Jacob Gentry. He spills his guts to us in an exclusive interview. All that and more today on High on Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one. Now it's time for Strain Wreck, the segment of our show where John and I discuss which strain we're getting wrecked on in each episode. It's only fitting that we start the episode off with this before we move into the deeper shit we're going to get into. John, what are we smoking today? I don't today? know if it's always the best idea for us to just get wrecked and then go into deeper stuff. Or it's better. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I just still got some of that Pineapple Express, actually. Left oh, my meat yeah. over a friend's house. But uh, I did bring a uh, vape today. I got some uh, Super Lemon Haze. This came out really weird. <laughs> did you Super Lemon Haze. <laughs> you did just say it like that. What was that? <laughs> I don't know. That was a weird-ass pause. Uh, if you could have figured it out, Super Lemon Haze. <laughs> well, uh, while you get us started on that, uh, I wanted to tell you I have uh, some news. that uh, For those of you listening, we're actually recording on Friday the 13th. Uh, so... Uh, Got there, part six playing in the background. Yeah, and uh, so some news actually dropped today. By Monday when this episode airs, it might be more common knowledge, but uh, director of uh, Friday the 13th part six, Jason Lives, our buddy Tom McLaughlin, who we've had on the show, and Jason Lives is our is John's favorite uh, film oh, in the series. Hands down. It turns out that uh, due to the crazy-ass court you know, case going on right now with the rights for the Friday the 13th series... Uh, Tom McLaughlin decided that since this is the only Friday the 13th this year, that he was going to drop some news on Bloody Disgusting. And the news was that he kind of wanted to reveal the script that he'd been working on for uh, almost a year now. With uh, He's writing it with James Sweet. And the film, it's the follow-up to Friday the 13th he Part 6. We talked about it briefly on our episode right. uh, towards the end. Right. Well, this is more detailed now. He says that uh, it's going to be, t- it's titled... Uh, Diary of Pamela Voorhees. And uh, basically, quote, this is directly taken from uh, Bloody Disgusting's website uh, from Tom McLaughlin. Quote, when James mentioned waiting to do a, wanting to do a story that starts with the birth, birth of Jason, my head exploded. With so many episodes and characters, events that we can create, he continues, we both just took off on it. The objective was also to reveal how they became the iconic horror legends that they are. In fact, we created so many characters and storylines, we realized we had a limited series as well as a feature-length film. He continues, uh, The Diary of Pamela Voorhees is based on Victor Miller's characters uh, and her young son Jason. The story takes place in post-World War II Middle America. People are uncertain, afraid of the unknown, and untrusting. This is the world Mrs. Voorhees and Jason must face. On the night of Friday the 13th, 1946, an abused 16-year-old Pamela gives birth to a facially disfigured, mentally challenged boy named Jason. 
Over the next 10 years, we see the painful life this shunned single mother must survive to raise and protect her Jason, who most of all these people, who most of all these people is treated as a freak. Her psychopathic mind turns darker, then vengeful, as she brutally kills any detractor of her son. Um, then they move on, Pamela fantasizing on finding some place that's truly theirs. Both the film and the limited series conclude with their arrival at Camp Crystal Lake, and that would be when the first film picks up. That's interesting, because I'm... <laughs> You have to think of he he's got a point of all the Jason movies, but none of them have ever explored that. No, none of them, and it, it would be uh, to I, I really already feel that Jason is kind of sympathetic, but I feel that this might make you more on the non-sympathetic part with uh, Mrs. Voorhees. <laughs> Maybe, uh, well, well, we'll see what, what what kind of mom she was. <laughs> yeah, that's I, a, yeah. Oh well, we know that she would definitely go and kill counselors. Yeah, especially if her little boy was harmed. But do you think, like, would you rather see it as a movie or a TV show? I think a movie. A movie, same. It would be really And normally cool. I'd be kind of apprehensive on the subject, but I think Tom, Tom would do a good job. Yeah, same. It's If it's Tom involved, rather he's writing or directing. If he has his hand involved, we can trust it. It'll probably turn out decent. And, uh, yeah, I just thought, you know, that was killer news. Like, that's cool that he, uh, yeah, I haven't that. heard and, about that. And it's cool because, you know, it's a, if there was a Friday the 13th movie that wasn't called Friday the 13th, it's just called, you know, the diary of Pamela Voorhees or diary of Pamela Voorhees. And then that kind of would just go right in the front of the movies at the very beginning as your little prequel before Friday the 13th starts. That would be pretty freaking cool. And I like the idea of also making Mrs. Voorhees the character again, instead of like getting to see how she becomes, the psychotic bitch that she is <laughs> to see her like mentally break and become that person. That's interesting. I feel that they would, Tom's also very upbeat and funny. So I feel that, the, that it probably is, is dark, but it probably is very like funny as well. I'm sure. Wherever the red dot goes, you back. <laughs> I mean, that's the most iconic Friday, the 13th line. Yeah, I would have to agree. Yeah. Yeah, well, but that's um, pretty interesting. I had, I hadn't read about that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It was just uh, so. Who knows if it'll actually get made? Like he says later in the in the article on Bloody Disgusting, basically by the time the rights are resolved, the person who ends up with the rights probably is going to want to just make another hockey mask Jason movie. So for all we know, this will never come to fruition. But the idea is out there, and it it would be a cool idea. And with all these fan films coming out, I mean, especially some of the shittier ones. I'm not gonna. I ain't gonna mention no names, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but uh, you'd think that you know, even if this didn't get greenlit by Hollywood or you know New Line, that there'd be somebody out there after hearing this, especially like that they'd be willing to try to start a crowdfund for. It's not the worst idea. No, definitely not. Uh, yeah, and we just got the classic Vinny line up on the uh, TV. It fits right in with watching Part Six right it now. Just happened, yeah. All right, man. Well, let's get into horror history. Yeah, let's do it. This week in horror history. All right, so this week uh, for horror history, it's uh, it's, it's not the greatest. It's we few got and far between. <laughs> we got 1971, the abominable Doctor Phoebes. That's vibes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, vibes. I fucked it up. <laughs> that's uh, that's my favorite Vincent Price movie. I had mentioned on a prior episode that my favorite movie by him used to be The Last Man on Earth. But it became this. And uh, funny thing, because when I was talking about wrestling, I wanted to bring this up to you. In order to gain more publicity, this film uh, was advertised as Vincent Price's 100th film. That just reminded me of Goldberg's like 100 <laughs> undefeated streak. That just wasn't true. 
I was gonna say he had, he had those inflated numbers. <laughs> and uh, Vincent Price uh, supposedly he often like was laughing so much on set that uh, or during filming rather that he would like wreck his makeup and have to have his makeup reapplied. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, up next from 1976, we have Grizzly. Yeah, and Grizzly's one of those movies that, in the wake of Jaws, came all of these like wild animal attack <laughs> movies. But however, Grizzly is one of the ones that I will back. I fucking love Grizzly. I avoided it for the longest time, thinking it looked like shit because I was just, oh, it's a Jaws cash in. But I watched it and it's fun. It's not a brain, it's not a thinker. You don't need to sit down and dissect it. You literally can smoke, drink, chill, do whatever the fuck you do and just watch it and enjoy it. It's a. Uh, the, here's the thing, uh, the grizzly bear that was in the movie was actually uh, nicknamed Teddy, and uh, Teddy actually stood 11 feet tall, and he was in captivity at the time, and he was the largest bear in captivity at that time. Damn. He was trained by a trainer, but he was untamed, so that's really it wasn't crazy. Really trained then? Yeah, right, right, <laughs> and also. Uh, a comic book artist Neil Adams did the poster art for Grizzly, and Neil is known for his work on Batman and Green Lantern comics in the early seventies. So that makes sense given Grizzly's uh, date. And up last, my favorite on the list from nineteen eighty one, Happy Birthday to Me. Hell yeah, that poster's classic. The most iconic poster, and you know the funny thing about it, uh, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, it's literally just a dude with his mouth gaping. <laughs> and, got that uh, gaping mouth and a, a shish kebab full of like food on it about to get stabbed into his mouth and uh there's so many people that haven't seen the movie but they're familiar with the poster it's just one of those like some people it's like is it real it kind of almost seems like it's just such an audacious poster uh but here's the thing that's funny uh the slogan on that on the original poster reads john will never eat shish kebab again However, well, obviously, well, the thing is, though, through the back of his throat. <laughs> but the thing is, there's no character named John in the movie. So, like, they have this whole thing on the, the quote on the poster John will never eat shish kebab again. There is no John in the I movie. I never really thought about it. Yeah, that. me neither. It was one of those things when it was said, I was like, oh my God, like, that, that's fucking hilarious. That goes to show you that was one of those. They used to come up with the poster before the concept. They'd be like, let's do a poster of this. And then they came up with the tagline. And then they wrote the script around that. And somewhere along the way, I think, they forgot the title the, that there wasn't a John or there was a John in the script that his name got changed. I don't know. but uh, The director was a John. Yeah, uh, John Lee Thompson, right? Yeah, I mean, the movies he worked on. Like, compared to Happy Birthday for Me, like, Guns of the Navarone, Cape Fear, yeah. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, The White Buffalo. Yeah, and, uh, and also, uh, lead actress Melissa Sue Anderson, she took time off from Little House on the Prairie to do this movie. So, yeah, she plays a, uh, she's actually not blind in this movie, like she is in <laughs> Little House on the Prairie. So, you actually, I don't mean any offense by that, but, you know, you get to see her actually. I, I'm offended. You get to see her actually, like, uh act in a different way than you're used to and this is another uh exploitation film that's what they <laughs> call that and uh, oh no 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 before we move on i'm not gonna let you i'm not gonna let you move on yet because i had something else i wanted to say all right i got you uh also uh 1959 aka <clears throat> i'm sorry released in 1959 godzilla raids again also Jesus, came out this week. Godzilla movie. <laughs> well, uh, here's a little knowledge, Nug. This is the only Godzilla movie where Godzilla's spines do not glow before he releases atomic breath. First, I thought you were going to say like Godzilla didn't have a spine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now you can send us into puff puff right. ass. On that, you got your little Godzilla. What you have, you. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't. I don't, I don't know why I'm welcome, but 
Anyway, let's move on to Puff Puff Ask, the segment of our show where we answer questions uh, that you send us through social media at High on Horror 420 or email at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com and also uh, through our website, High on Horror.com. All right, before we get started here, like I said, we're watching part six in the background. And uh, I can't think of her name, Sissy, yeah. who's playing the uh, Camp Blood game. I want that to be a real card game. Like, that needs to happen. People have made, like, rules for it up online for you to play. No, I, mean. I need I need Tom to come out. <laughs> he, he did the script. He directed it. I need him to tell me the rules. I don't believe it until he gives them to us. I, th- that would make it official. I would imagine <laughs> that that would make it official. Now, we'll get into the questions here. <clears throat> I don't know why uh, Drew's having me go first. I'm worried about what could be the second question here. Your question's actually funnier. Uh, mine's funny, so that makes me worried as to w- <laughs> why I'm going first. But anyway, uh, Aaron S. from Nebraska asks, would you guys have sex with a ghost if you could? <laughs> I, I mean, I guess. I, mean, I, I guess it depends, right? I mean... First of all, that that would that count as cheating? <laughs> would that count? That's as, your first question. About no, but, that? well, because Not like, how but, is it possible? <laughs> no, because of, well, my friend, <laughs> no, because my first thought is like, first of all, if you could do that, would it be considered cheating? Second of all, like, who would you be having sex with? The old lady that died in your house? No, I mean, it could have been somebody died in their twenties or something. Some hot bitch. I mean, I don't mean bitch as disrespect. I just don't know their names individually. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Yeah, guess I, don't, I stole that from Cat Williams. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's it's it's that's a tough question. Uh, if I could, and it was like somebody here's here's my official answer. I guess if I could, and it was somebody that I thought was worth it. Like I can't think of any dead people off the top of my head. Even if I could, I'm not gonna name them and say that I want to have sex with them. <laughs> Let's just say that. Uh, so uh, <laughs> let's just say that, that if that situation were to occur and it were possible, oh. made by somehow scientific reasons, um, I would like to think, by the way, that uh, that that Aaron, I would like to think Aaron, that you were baked as shit when you wrote this question <laughs> to us. So we appreciate it. Gives a whole new meaning to the word ghosting. But <laughs> but I would and stranger even fuck. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but I would uh, I, I would think that if it was a if it was a bright person, if it was possible, and if my wife consented, I, mean, I feel that <laughs> I'd still feel consented. guilty even like, if it was like, a ghost. Would you be mad if like Channing Tatum died and she had sex with like Channing Tatum's ghost? A little bit, but I mean like. <laughs> At the same time, I'd be like, I don't. Re- do I say it? I, mean, I don't really feel that. I'm not gonna say it. She'd be so pissed if I said what I was gonna say. <laughs> no, I'm not saying. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it. anyway. I don't. Let me put. It, okay, I'll. I'll sum it up better. Here we go. I don't feel that a ghost would do any damage. <laughs> so I feel that I, uh, I would be I a mean, little. <laughs> how you know? <laughs> True. Hypothetically, I mean, I don't know, man. Yeah, I'd be mad. Fuck, I'd be. Pu- I'd be fighting. I'd be uh, fighting the channel. Tatum spiritual ghost. dick. <laughs> Uh, that 21 spectral, jump street spectral dick spectral cop <laughs> all right anyway so what's your answer would you <laughs> i said yeah i guess so <laughs> okay <laughs> i ain't biased <laughs> I, right. I always use uh it's not ghost but i always use the uh the light on nicole from uh i think it's clerks too where he's like we're gonna go to mars discover a new life form and fuck it <laughs> <laughs> 
So they'll be like, there he goes home, boy. He fucked a Martian. <laughs> All right, let's go. <laughs> All right. I think that's a good segue to this second question. All right, yeah. So my question actually uh, comes from the Instagram user Hunter Zach Zolomon Vran. And he randomly, I don't know if this was a troll post or if, Jesus I don't know, but he just randomly messaged us and goes, hey, is transformation into giant oh insects God, scary? I <laughs> I'm just, I, my first thought was, uh, you know, like Friday the 13th, or A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, I said Friday the 13th, shame on me, uh, the, the roach in the box, you know, and I was like turning into a giant, but I was like, she didn't turn giant, he was like, she just turned into a tiny Freddy roach, versus Jason. Yeah, and so I'm like, I don't really like, the question's kind of like, I don't, is it, I don't, it's never been scary to me, I've never been scared of, I mean, I guess, the, okay, the closest I've ever been scared to a giant bug is Pennywise, when he's like the crab or the spider or the crab spider. I was say spider. the fly when I was a kid. Uh, technically, but it don't really look like a fly. That, you know, like that was my thing. Was like uh, he doesn't get to the final phase enough where it looks like a fly. But that is the, probably the best actually example because it is a giant insect. Yeah, he fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess uh, is transformation into giant insect. I mean, scary? if it's done right, but I don't necessarily know what done right is. Uh, yeah, I don't have any th- any uh, ideas off the top of my head. Were you scared of the giant ants in the nineteen fifties movies? Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, or a mosquito, like the giant mosquitoes. Yeah, that, that, that transfer. I, I, I mean, would not like a giant mosquito. Things are going to like impale you. Like transform, transforming into a werewolf, you know, I understand. So, but transforming is it the into same a, concept of transforming into a bug? Yeah, right. Do we need to get John Landis in here? <laughs> now somebody might die. John Landis killed oh, people. I was, oh, we both <laughs> took shots and we should. Oh, shots fired. Oh, pun man. intended. But if uh, John Landis wants to come on this show, you're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> we are fans of an American werewolf in London. I, and I do actually, I am fond of innocent blood. But And anyway. I will say, I, I don't think John Landis is responsible for those deaths. No, it's <laughs> all, yeah. But Anyway, um, we'll move on. Yeah, so uh, don't forget to write in your questions to us on all social media platforms at High on Horror 420 or email us at highonhorror420 at gmail.com. Or visit our website, highonhorror.com. Now let's talk about BSI or Broadcast Signal Intrusion. Broadcast Signal Intrusion is a 2021 horror conspiracy thriller directed and edited by today's guest, Jacob Gentry, and written by Phil Drinkwater and Tim Woodell. And uh, BSI begins pretty ominously. The film set in 1999 Chicago. Uh, while transferring videotapes for a local TV station, James, played by Harry Shum Jr., finds a tape of a news broadcast from 1987. And it's like some weird-looking motherfucker in a white mask and a black wig. <laughs> and it makes like, I guess it's like mannequin-like movements, yeah, you man, call creepy it. creepy as hell. And uh, it's all over some garbled-ass audio. And I want you all to notice, uh, to you listeners out there, uh, the movie like actually starts, the opening shot of the film, the uh, the lead's name is slipping my brain right now, believe it or not. What is his name? It's uh, Harry Shum. Harry. The, 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 uh, or, or the yeah, character, the actor, James. James, that's it. There we go. Yeah, James. Um, the film starts with James having a dream, and the dream that he has... It's quick. It's kind of like a. It's kind of. It reminds me of a scene in The Descent, 
when uh, the mm-hmm. the lead actress yeah. is having I didn't think of that. A, a dream, and she like turns, you know, she's like it's her little daughter, and the little daughter turns around, and it's one of the crawlers. Like a, a similar type of dream happens here, where he uh, he's dreaming, and it's you know his wife from the back, and she kind of turns over her shoulder to look at him, and she's a bot, and he wakes up, and like after that is when he watches this tape where we see, you know, this, like, intrusion with this, like, mannequin-looking bot that looks like kind of what his wife just looked like in his dream. So from the start, pay attention to this movie. The seed is planted. You know, you need to find your spot in, in uh, James's headspace, and you'll be all right through the ride of this movie. You need to maintain knowing that the seed was planted right there, at least in my eyes. And in my interpretation, the seed was planted right there and what follows the rest of the film. And uh, down the rabbit hole, James goes, and he looks into another incident, and that leads James to recover a second BSI, this time from the Night Pirates, uh, whose footage, which is a lot like the first video. Uh, He also finds out the FCC took all the copies of the tape, uh, but James still remains intrigued. Wouldn't that make you want to watch it more? That would make me want to find it even more. Why? Why? Why was this stolen? Exactly. And, uh... This movie is based, like uh, we had said, on Max Hedrum incident and some other BSIs. Uh, but the the background for all this, uh, actually in our interview, uh, Jacob kind of gives, at one point, kind of gives a rundown of, of the background for that. So, so we'll just kind of skip that here in our, uh, I guess, plot summary. <laughs> and uh, James finds chat rooms and... Uh, Finds a whole host of amateur investigators offering interpretations, explanations, and information. I mean, that was 1999. I don't think we're much different now. Everybody on the internet's an expert on something. That's very true. And uh, he connects the hijack signals to a string of, well, some in the chat room, I should say, connect the hijack signals to a string of unsolved kidnappings. And this also, uh, I guess... I guess you could say triggers James. Yeah. Uh, since his wife Hannah vanished a year ago, and he's thinking if he can solve this case, it'll bring him closure. And uh, the closer he thinks he's getting to the truth, the more James allows it to just pretty much consume his whole life. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, it it goes from 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 bad to worse. Basically, James goes down the rabbit hole, as you said, and and. Uh, by the end of the film, it's uh, it's the rabbit hole just seems to just get deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's like we don't know how far the rabbit hole goes. It's like uh, one review that I read, I think it was so. Uh, nope, I'm not gonna falsely name someone, but the review that I read said that right when you think the movie ends, it looks like it's just about to begin. I think that that's kind of like a really good way to look at it, uh, and it's just such a um, it, it is it's a it's a mind fuck of a movie, but. It's not if you, you know, follow it and pay attention to it. It's really hard when, like, you're trying to not spoil a movie because there's so many more things you could go into. Like, maybe there will be a part two of this where we go back and kind of are able to go more in depth and kind of, like, walk fans through it to kind of make them understand that a little better. But uh, for now, with it being a new movie, I really think to those of you out there who like thinking people's movies you need to watch this movie and uh hit us up on social media let us know you know we would love to talk to you about it we'll discuss it with you help explain it to you it's uh it's it's awesome yeah and um james gets convinced by these people in the chat room that uh the disappearances of these women is tied to the bsi because the kidnappings occur one day before the broadcast signal intrusion and many times james is warned to stop in the research in this he's warned it to consume him uh he might find things better left just just leave him alone 
Dr. Lithgow, played by Steve Pringle, tells him not to confuse conspiracy with coincidence, but James has been grasping for answers since his wife went missing. And then we get what I think is one of the most important lines in the movie, in my opinion. Some threads aren't worth picking at. That's that's a very good quote. And good, I wouldn't tape, be surprised if that pops up on our social media this week, <laughs> next week. I thought about it. Uh, the tapes in the chat rooms, uh, they offer him as much hope as they're feeding him delusion at this point. Yeah. And then I, I feel like now's probably a good time to bring in another important character I think we need to talk about, and that's Alice, played by Kelly Mack. She just kind of shows up following James after after his first payphone call. And then in a bar, she convinces him to do a bunch of shots with her. James gets drunk, and Alice takes him home. And when he wakes up, uh, she's balls deep. Well, I guess I guess that's probably not the right term, but uh, whatever. Either way, she's deep in research, and now James has a sidekick in his research. And she noticed one of the videos has Morris Code. And guess who knows Morris Code? Alice. Which I don't... I remember they taught me Morris Code, and I remember, like, in Boy Scouts, and I remembered that for, like, two months, and then I don't know shit about it. I could remember I, I, I like, could remember Morse Code longer than I could remember how to tie knots. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Well, I don't I don't know. remember either now, and I wasn't in the Boy Scouts. I was self-taught. <laughs> uh, well, they end up tracking it to a storage unit in Peoria, and uh, right before this, a man who James had previously met in Chinatown told him to stop looking into the videos... Uh, he's downstairs, and uh, they have a they have a little bit of a incident uh, that has to leave in uh, Alice and James running away. Uh, they find the name of the storage owner where this uh, the phone calls are coming from. They track it to a storage unit, and the storage owner is Stephen Meyer. If that's his real name, because he's listed in the uh, credits as Freaker. Ph. PH, if, uh, PH Reeker, <laughs> PH Reeker. uh, f- some people might not be familiar with, with, uh, that term, but it was back in the eighties people that would hack into phone lines. I guess you could kind of, um, if you've seen the movie war games from mm-hmm. the eighties with Matthew Broderick, that's pretty much the, the, the stuff, the stuff they would do. And he admits to making the tape. And he gives some story about he had been fascinated by BSI and he made a presentation at his school. And then the night pirates confronted him and they showed him a life of hedonism. Uh, the story's not entirely believable. And uh, Alice seems to buy it hook, line, sinker, but James ain't having that shit. Yeah, no, he's a little, he's too on it. He's, he's been too obsessed to let any little details slip by and he knows something's off. And uh, you keep hearing... Uh, like somebody like sounds like pounding walking somebody fucking <laughs> i mean that is also a possibility i think the freakers just hiding bodies he's just locking them up well i mean if he locking them up he could be fucking them that's possible but <laughs> that's not cool though that's, no, that's not, not cool that's though. not cool definitely not cool i don't think let's just say it's probably not consensual <laughs> no Anyway, back to our story. I can't imagine it would be if you tied <laughs> up in somebody's fucking. Let's do the gimp from Pulp Fiction and enjoy that type of shit. It's definitely not going to be the gimp consensual. Gimp from Pulp Fiction. Uh, anyway, uh, 
The Freaker's a lot bigger than James, so he intimidates him to get the hell out of his house. He said, hippity hoppity, get off my property. <laughs> I don't, he did not actually say that. But, That's not uh, very intimidating. Yeah, I don't think that would have been very intimidating. Uh, they go back to the hotel room. Alice leaves the following morning, and James goes back to the antique store and finds it sealed by police. He goes back to his room, and it's been ransacked. Could have been the Night Pirates. But the third tape is lying on the floor. And maybe Alice has delivered to James the truth. Maybe she's in with the Night Pirates. Uh, maybe that other guy, the other guy he met up with, told him at the beginning in Chinatown not to trust the women. Mm. And he also stressed the fact that the Night Pirates are everywhere. We're showing some real constraint this week. I'm <laughs> trying not to spoil it, but. Uh, we got you up uh, pretty far into the movie, but if you want to uh, find out how it ends, uh, it's on Shudder, uh, so you can definitely go check it out there. Um, I also want to say this film incorporates like references to pop culture stuff, like the 80s sitcom Small Wonder, yep. as uh, well as Doctor Who, and Doctor Who was involved in the Max Hedrum incident. Uh, Do Doctor Who assumes the form of Don Cronus. Don Cronus. <laughs> yep. uh, it's a knockoff. It recreates like the fast and cheap British sci-fi. Uh, BSI's version of Small Wonder is Stepbot, whose lead character is an android created to care for a widow's five children. And that's what uh, the broadcast pirates disturbingly like disguise themselves as. And then uh, one that you can see very quickly was... Uh, it went by uh, Net Cities, which is a take on Geo Cities, which was like in the late '90s, early aughts. That was like everybody was making websites there. I know I went and made some dumbass sites there because it was free to make them. Yeah, I, I definitely like the Don Kronos knockoff of uh, Doctor Who. You know, like especially after doing research into the uh, actual, you know, signal intrusions, yeah. the signal hijackings, and then you you know know it's Doctor Who when you see the the Don Kronos thing. It's it was pretty 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 well done. Um, and uh yeah it's uh it's it's it, there's a lot of like kind of almost like pop culture things sort of incorporated into the film and it uh it gives you that sense of nostalgia um and it definitely uh it, i don't know man this movie does the trick i really enjoy this movie i would give it eight out of eight out of eight out of five eight out of five damn dog eight out of ten dave Meltzer in over there he given like 15 stars out of five to a match another wrestling honestly i'd probably give it 8.9 or 9 8.9 or 9 i really liked it yeah i did too you know i was uh i was really i think i'm also a sucker for stuff with vhs tapes yeah me too definitely I remember yeah. it's crazy how, how you get nostalgic for old technology. We're like, I remember like when I got CDs, I'm like, or DVDs, I'm like, Ooh, why, why would I ever want to buy VHS? Yeah. And now I'm like, damn, why did I keep my VHS tape in I this? I know, I know. But yeah, this definitely goes like right in the same vein of sensor. Like if you wanted to do a, uh, like a whole like VHS night or something, or do like a retro night, you watch like broadcast signal intrusion sensor. They all, they, they're, they're, they're both really good fucking movies. Like you're not going to regret watching them. They're both <laughs> thinking man movies. Like I said, you know, well, both, both, both given high grades from John and I. And we'll talk about it at the end of the episode, but uh, next week we'll also have another movie that involves uh, VHS tape. Yes, that's very true. But we'll but we'll get to that in the wrap up later. Yes, yeah, so uh, 
I guess now let's get into our burn and learn segment, the, well, se- the segment I mean, of our show where we... Well, we're we're not doing burn and learn. If you want burn and learn this week, you got to listen to the interview because Jacob just throws in some little nuggets all all throughout the interview. And there are a couple that uh, he says he has not shared anywhere else. Yeah, the, the, a, lot of these, uh, a lot of these facts here that you're going to th- hear in this interview are actually exclusive to this interview or the first time that they've actually been outed. So, yeah, you're right. We will skip uh, Burn and Learn this week. And as I said in the intro of this episode, we're going to fill your heads with knowledge, and it's about to happen through this interview. And, I mean, this is a thinking person movie, so if you want your Burn and Learn, it ain't going to be easy. You're going to have to sit through the interview <laughs> and get them all through that way. That's right. Yep, you're going to learn there it are the some way. good ones. Yep. Watch the movie. And learn and listen, or listen and learn, and uh, or go get yourself learned. Or uh, yeah, like you know, we're not doing spoilers this episode, like we said. So listen, learn, go watch. Our guest today is the director of the film that we're talking about today, Broadcast Signal Intrusion which is now streaming exclusively on Shudder. He's also known for his work on the hit film The Signal, which is fucking awesome, and Synchronicity. Welcome, Jacob Gentry. Thank you for being on High on Horror. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you for uh, taking the time to be on. Uh, so we'll start this uh, with the way that we usually do. Uh, we'll just ask, because you're on High on Horror. Um, are you pro-cannabis? Do you smoke? Uh, I'm very pro-cannabis. Uh, I... Lately, I've been more into sort of edibles just because of the living in California and having a very nice uh, selection. Right. Um, and, you know, at my uh, advancing age, <clears throat> more manageable to control uh, the intake. But I'm very I'm very uh, pro. Yes, for sure. And uh, yeah, another question we always like to start out with is uh, how did you get into horror? Like, what was it that attracted you to the genre? Um, I think it, I will, I mean, horror specifically is a genre that I feel like is very, uh, identifiable in terms of its tropes and the things that make it. And there's lots of different subgenres with inside of horror. And I'm a big genre person. I, I definitely like That's genre. Sure. Um, but that, that goes to like all sorts of genres. And so I kind of see horror as one of the, like the major genres that I, um, that I enjoy, but also a lot of it had to do with, um, just as a lot of the big, I mean, you know, you name it, the majority of like filmmakers that I know and that, uh, and even famous ones that like horror is a really good entry point into just filmmaking in general. Um, because, because in terms of like the kind of things you can do with a limited amount of money and limited resources, and it can exist outside of like some of the things that other kinds of movies um, tend to have. And I like, you know, I guess that's that was kind of my I mean, the first like horror thing that I did, I guess, would technically be the signal um, with the with David Bruckner and Dan Bush. But yeah. 
don't know. It's just a cool, I mean, it's like, it's a cool genre. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, a lot of your first movies you work on are usually going to be low budget. And I feel like horror fans are very forgiving about budget as long as it has a good well, story I just to like, it. I like uh, signifying, uh, I, I like tropes of, of, of genres. Like if I'm doing a movie in a certain genre, I like genre because I like, I like the promise of it. You know, I like mm-hmm. the idea of like, here is, here is what we're all gathered around the campfire to do. And, um, and horror being a very distinct genre along with like science fiction and Western, what have you. Um, and horror has lots of different, um, like I said earlier, subgenres, but then it also, it can combine with other genres really well too. There's, there's a lot of really, mm-hmm. um, fun aspects to that. So like, for example, when I, when I made the movie, the signal, um, we combined a lot of like comedy and science fiction um, and some apocalyptic kind of things with uh, with the horror genre. And I think that if it's tricky, but if you if you're able to kind of pull it off, it can be really exhilarating. It's a delicate balance. For sure. For sure. And yeah. uh, BSI was originally on uh, Queensberry Pictures, like their initial slate of films. Uh, how was it working with a studio that was just getting started? Um, it was cool. I mean, you know, it was, it was nice to work with, uh, I mean, they had, they had been involved in lots of, um, different, uh, kinds of, um, movies in different capacities, you know, working, um, they had been involved with like dark sky and MPI movies in general. And that was really cool. Um, as, as far as BSI goes, it was really great because, uh, being in Chicago, uh, that was where, you know, that was where I, I sort of wanted to set the movie um, to make it more sort of closer to the, to the real life sort of antecedents to the movie. Um, and that was really great. And then they also have at MPI where their, their production offices are, they have, that was where we built out the, like, they have a, like a, a um, an archive. So we were able to like utilize the location there and everything. So that was cool. Um, but yeah, you know, there was they had an archive in their in their building that has the original uh, copy of uh, the film print of uh, uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer because that was like the kind of first claim to fame with that one. Yeah, I think they had a copy. There's a Bruder film in there, which was great. Um, so there's actually some of those uh, that make appearances in Broadcasting Intrusion. But yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say, uh, you did choose Chicago. Uh, was that chosen because of some of the previous broadcast uh, intrusions? Um, well, yeah. I mean, when I started working on the movie, it was sort of set in any city. And there were definitely allusions to stuff like the Max Hedrum incident. But part of what I sort of wanted to do with it was kind of like make it even more specifically related to that. Does that make sense? So like, uh, almost like it's like a historical fiction of, of the, um, of the Max Hedrum incident, like really focus on that and like have it be kind of like a, like a, our version of that, a fictionalized version of something like that. So we get real specific about it. And since the opportunity was to shoot in Chicago, it allowed for us to sort of, utilize the real texture and everything just give the movie more of a sense of realism like it's actually based on a true story even though it's not you know 
Yeah, absolutely. That 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 makes total sense. And uh, yeah, um, I want I want to backtrack for a second though, Jacob. I want to ask you, um, when did you know that you wanted to be a director? You know, you have uh, several titles, and like you know, they're they're pretty good. So like, and you're you're pretty consistent. Uh, I just want to know, like, when what like you know, when did you know that's what you wanted to do? Well, when I was when I was a uh, an adolescent, I really wanted more than anything to be a comic book comic book artist. Uh, that's what I really wanted to, and I was, you know, pretty young, but, uh, you know, at the time when like comic books were, uh, really, really hitting like a, a peak of like popularity, you know, like the, the Todd McFarlane's and the Jim Lee's and the image comics was just starting and all that kind of stuff. And, but then I kind of reached a, a zine, like a limit to my, my abilities. I felt like, and um then i saw then between my um eighth grade year and my ninth grade year just out my age uh i saw a little movie called terminator 2 judgment day and that that movie really just blew my mind and it was also a movie that had a lot of um had a lot of uh like a lot of like material that was available about the making of it. Right. Like you could like in the video store that I went to, right. Right. There was like a copy that I rented like 50 times, which was like this 30 minute, like making of that movie. And the, the, I had magazine magazines of, of anything I could find that had Terminator two talked about, you know, whether it's like, um, Starlog or Rolling Stone or what have you. And then like, you know, my friends had like Ken Griffey jr. Posters on their wall. And I had, james cameron posters on my wall like i was really i became obsessed i had both so i got to yeah yeah um i just was singularly focused that and then a little bit with uh there was another movie that came out right before that that kind of started to pique my interest which was new jack city and that movie was so like obviously directed that like i i was just the way that that mario van peoples did it there was so many you could really see the filmmaking um, whereas now it might seem a little over the top, but like at the time it was like, oh, this, there's like a director here. Um, so, so after seeing Terminator two, I got to high school and I was in, I was lucky enough to be in a video production class. And I was like this and the first day of the, of, uh, of high school, I ran into my friend who I think you guys have had on the podcast, uh, this guy named Chris Allender who directed the old ways. Yes. Oh Yeah. And uh, yep. him and I schemed and mastermind. We both just like were losing our minds about Terminator 2. And we made a movie called Terminator 3 School Day where I played the Terminator. The good. It was kind of like a because we were making it for our school. We had to kind of make it, you know, pro, I don't know, freedom of creativity or something. But it was like a spoof. It was like a like a Mel Brooks, Zucker Brothers kind of like uh spoof on terminator 2 and for whatever reason it ended up playing on mtv like because our teacher had a relationship with the the network so the very first short film that i made with chris was played on mtv and that was kind of like much like uh rocky or citizen kane um it's all been downhill from there. I think we peaked at 14. I really do believe so. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that was kind of what really sparked it. And then from then on, I was just, I was just all in like, 
um, you know, getting into, um, I, I come across this on PBS. They had this like Martin Scorsese, uh, documentary. Um, uh, and then, you know, of course I just continued to do it until, until today. That was kind of like I was in, it had all the things that comic books could do, but more, you know, to me, it had the sequential okay. art aspect of it. Cause I could do storyboards and stuff. Um, but I felt like it incorporated what I also loved was like, I did a lot of theater and I did a lot of, and I was really interested in music. Um, I was in a band in high school. So like, I was just, it, 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 it kind of expanded the, the parameters of what sequential art could be. And I could kind of create in that way. And then, and then I've just been a cinema cinemata. It's movies have been my life since I was, since that young age. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's really awesome how you, you know, your, your video played on MTV. That's badass. And, uh, I mean, it's always a good sign when somebody who wants to be in filmmaking is coming in with James Cameron as their inspiration. That's usually a good sign. And you had mentioned that you wanted to be a comic book artist and then you had just said storyboard. So I was going to ask you, do you do any of your own storyboarding for your movies? Um, I have, I mean, there's, I mean, I've done a lot of different things, um, Definitely uh, sequences, um, and I've done a lot of my own storyboards. I've had I've worked with other artists uh, just to kind of, um, you know, like I, I did these movies, uh, um, the Super Psycho Sweet Sixteen movies, uh, the trilogy of of horror movies on, um, and uh, those the there were sequences in those that were highly highly storyboarded. So I like to I like to story storyboard sequences as I've. As I've progressed, I've gotten less interested in storyboards because I feel like it it's a little bit limiting unless it's a sequence that it just needs to be like or a stunt or something that needs to have a sequence that needs very specific stuff that you got to get a lot of different departments on board with. Um, you know, I think there was only maybe like one sequence in BSI that I storyboarded, but ultimately because of the because I usually work in lower budgets it it's a little bit more difficult and i like to i like to sort of get into location and just sort of like i like to sort of figure out what we're going to do i don't want to commit to storyboards because then i'm like sort of stuck on a plan in the abstract before i've seen the actors like doing what they're doing so it's really just depends on the project you know i mean um i did a video i did a, a like a video short film thing for this band broken bells it's uh the science fiction um thing with christina hendrix and it uh and there were these models and um for the spaceships and stuff and for that it was like every second of that was storyboarded right i even made like a little um animatic like like made like a moving rip reel for it so oh wow okay well, um, well, you direct, you edit, and you write, uh, and, and you do more than that. So I wanted to ask you, before we get into broadcast signal intrusion, uh, what do you find to be the most rewarding thing to do in like film industry? Well, what's the most rewarding thing to do, and what about it fulfills you? I mean, the most, reward, the most enjoyable or the most fulfilling thing that I do is the editing part. That is by far the best part. Okay. Like, that is hands down my favorite part of filmmaking like overall but 
in the big picture, I would say that one of the most rewarding things, I don't really enjoy shooting movies. It's actually, for me, it's, it's kind of painful. Okay. Um, some people love it. I don't, I don't know. For me, it's just, it's just very much like a thing I have to do to get to the editing, but shooting does have the thing has one element that is my favorite, even more than editing, which is when there's just sort of like this alchemy that happens with the actors, the actor will do something in a way that you never could have imagined the the DP does something, the, the lighting hits it a certain way. Um, you, you get the right timing of something and you, you make a discovery of something that you could have never in the abstract, like dreamed up. Okay. And that is the most exhilarating and, and exciting thing to, to do for sure. Yeah. I was going to say, you don't have many people that usually pick editing as their favorite thing to do. No. I surprising to me because it's it's the most well for me it's just it's just I can I just love the I never get bored of the just the different avenues you can go down and and the I don't know there's just something about the juxtaposition of of two images creating a new piece of meaning plus <clears throat> I will say that editing is the is the one thing that distinguishes movies I think Stanley Kubrick said this. It's like the one thing that distinguishes movies from all the other art forms is the editing because the, because you're basically taking two pictures and putting them next to each other and creating new meaning that never existed that could have existed in any other format, right? Um, like the coolest shot effect. Like you have a, a shot of me. It's just the same shot of me with a blank expression on my face cut to a bowl of soup. And he's hung and he cuts back to me and I'm hungry. You did the same shot of me to a, a casket and I'm, and I'm grieving. Right. And I just, the idea that just that alone to me is just endlessly interesting. And I think it's what makes movies and it is, but it's also just like when people talk about movies, editing is like the least interesting thing to talk about because it's one, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to know if a movie is well edited because you don't know what they're working with or what they did with the stuff. Right. Like, so, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you could definitely tell bad editing, but you don't even know how bad it is because you don't know what, I mean, there, there could be movies where the, you think the editing's bad, but they saved the movie from being a complete disaster. Um, and it's just not sexy. Right. It's not sexy. Cause there's not like, you know, they don't take a lot of like behind the scenes stills in the editing room. Cause it's literally just like, the most sort of you know like stinky like just just you know lots of farting going on i don't know um no but uh <laughs> yeah i don't know yeah it's it's weird i, I don't, i've never understood that because to me it's the it's it's just so great i don't know i love it but um i don't know maybe it's there's less sort of pressure because shooting is just like a non-stop like compromise machine you know you basically the the minute you the minute you hit print on the script is the minute the compromise truck rolls up to your house and you start loading shit into it right so like uh but editing feels like where you can kind of get some of those back a little bit or at least you know what i mean so so is it the creativity of editing is what what really draws you to it or 
the creativity, the the task oriented, it's both a craft and a creative art form, you know. It's also very just like I can get in a zone where I don't think about anything. I can just I'm just doing. You know what I mean? You make lots of different decisions and um Definitely. and I just and I and I think the best thing in the world is to just like to create meaning where there wasn't any is actually really really fun i mean it's just really it's really really great and you can you know but i also just believe in like the i don't know i mean maybe i shouldn't edit my own movies but i i love to do it so i don't know <laughs> well no it's um it's pretty cool that you edit your own movies and like john said you know we don't get like i think you're the first person that's ever said editing but i sure. also think you know i can actually see from your perspective because i was just gonna say you know that they do say that you don't know when an editor's done a good job because if he's done a good job you don't notice it so it is like a thankless job but it also it's kind of more of like the movie magic than directing because like all, everything that you direct it's post-production where all that shit like is made to look better and editing is included in that so i think editing kind of goes more with movie magic than actually filming movies absolutely i mean filming is i mean even the most sort of sophisticated artistic movie they're still just dealing with running out of light running out of time running out of money you know the you have the someone's running a chainsaw like three blocks away or whatever it is you know it's like uh you're dealing with the sound you're dealing with you know what have you um and and then, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, and you're just trying to get, get it done. You know I mean? It's like, even when you hear like someone like Paul Thomas Anderson talk about like making the master, which you're like, you know, you just imagine he's sitting there and he's like trying to sort of like find the depth of something, but really he's just like, man, I'm just trying to make the day, trying to get all the shots <laughs> by the end of the day, trying to get something <laughs> on camera. You know, it's like, it's everyone's, everyone's got the same, uh, difficulties you know but it is more it is more social it's more communal and that that does have its 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 upsides you know working with actors working with someone like harry shum jr uh, um working with someone like harry shum jr is uh that is that actually challenges the notion that i don't like shooting because he's just really fun to work with and be around um i remember when we made the signal we you know there were three directors on it. So there were, um, so like David Bruckner and Dan Bush and I like worked on each other's, even though it's like in three sections, they're not really independent. We were making one movie. It was just like, we would just be like tag team directing essentially. Um, okay. and like we were, we would photograph each other's, like I was the DP for Dave Bruckner's part, right? Like, like I, I was shooting it. So I was there like filming and just like, just able to just run the camera while he's directing. And then, you know, and there were these crossover moments where we would like tag each other out, you know, and that was like a really interesting experience. <laughs> and all the actors were like our, our closest friends. So that was like a real, that maybe also was a, was a time that was, that shooting was a lot more fun because there was a lot, there wasn't as much pressure on one director 
And, you know, for a lot of that movie, I was just like, I just need to make sure that the, the shots, that Dave's shots look as good as they can look and are in focus. <laughs> and that was right, actually, right. Really, you know, and then I could, and then when I was shooting my part or whatever, I could, you know, be the director, but then, and then Dave would do the same for me. And I don't know. It was, I don't know if I'd want to do it again, but it was definitely, it had a lot of really, really, really fun aspects to it. If you guys are, you guys are familiar with the movie, the signal, right? I don't mean to go off on some movie yep. that you never heard of. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> no, yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. But a lot of people think that it was like, um, that we made like, like it was like VHS or something that we just went off and made a short and then put them all together. And it was more just like, we were all making one movie, but we were, we were sort of tag teaming out. Like I said, directing duties from the different scenes. And sometimes we'd have to do different parts of right of different sections in the same day. So, yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Like a co-op experience. I mean, with, with that's kind of definitely, you know, uh, that's something to learn. That's definitely like learning on the fly. And, and definitely, I'm sure you picked up some sort of something you've learned from doing that, that helped you in future films, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you learn a lot, especially because, you know, they always say that like, you don't, that directors don't really know how other people, that how they're, they're sort of peers direct. Like you don't really know how other people are direct. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they sort of make the equivalency of like, just like you don't really know how you people, you know, like have sex. You don't really know how other people direct. Cause if you're a director, you don't usually, you're not really on a lot of other people's sets. And I never, I never um, was a crew member. Like that was, I just kind of started directing really early and um I, ne okay. I never really spent a lot of time on other people's sets. But so that was a really nice experience to be able to kind of be like, oh, that's really fascinating, um, especially with someone like Dave Bruckner and Dan Bush, because they're very different filmmakers than I am. And their style of directing is very different. You know what I mean? And that's, it was really interesting to see what they did and how they thought about stuff and what, what their process was like. Um, learning a lot from that. I learned a lot from... I learned a lot from my friends, you know, just, I mean, that's, you know, having director friends, it's like, I love, I love just talking to them about, I mean, a lot of when directors get together, a lot of what we're talking about is just like bitching and moaning about nobody understands how hard it is for us or whatever, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but we, uh, but I, it's really nice to like learn, especially when you feel like you have a distinct point of view that's different and you, but you respect the point of view of your other, of your, of your peer or your friend and they're, and you really like their work, but you can kind of, how would you incorporate what they do in your own thing? You know, which is really, you know, uh, it's a great learning experience. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I learned on, I learned on all of it. I mean, I'm, I'm a student of film history, so I'm I'm always reading about. I mean, I think even today I was watching a documentary about Raoul Walsh, the director of High Sierra, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, I just love. I just I'm consumed with that stuff because it's just endlessly fascinating to me. Um, that, yeah. And so, like, uh, obviously, you know, all of you have a different vision of how. You you see what's written. Did it bother you that necessarily you went with one way, and they're like, "Oh, well, that's not necessarily how I would have filmed it." Um. Well, no, because you. I mean, you can. 
Because I think by the time that like with something like if you're like by the time we made something like the signal, we had been like there was like we had like kind of a, a, a scene in Atlanta. Like there was like it was kind of like an indie rock. It was kind of like a music scene, you know, like in, like like when I was in Athens, Georgia, like it was like there was a lot of bands and they all played together and you go to like house shows and stuff like that. Um, it was like a punk rock like scene where we would like play our movies together, play our short films that we made individually together in like coffee shops and bars and, 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 and events. And, and then uh, Bruckner and I lived in this uh, loft in um, downtown Atlanta and we would just like project our movies on the screen. And, and, and I think that that relationship was really nice because I really loved what he did, but I don't, do it that way and he likes what i do and he doesn't do it that way and since we had these sort of distinct sections that we wrote as long as it fit in with what as long as it didn't completely contradict what the other people were doing then you know we could we could merge them together um yeah i don't know i don't really like to it's like because I, I mean I, at this point it's like the style that people that i respect have a, a lot of a lot of like coming to sense of confidence in your own in your own kind of methods and creative ideas is is kind of being okay that it's different than the way other people see it right like um some of my favorite sense. directors i don't even i have Definitely. zero interest in making those kind of movies but um but i really like i really really enjoyed that that point of view and that that sense of 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 what of 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 cinema you know absolutely um so okay let's talk about uh broadcast signal intrusion uh the movie that we have you on here today to talk about we're excited to talk about it um i the first question that i want to start with is um, you've stated, at least on Wikipedia, it says that you've stated that Creepy Pastas and Tara and the Android were inspirations for this film. I want to know how did you come up with the look of the bots? Because there's something completely off about them. They're inhuman looking and unsettling. They are creepy. Um, well, there was some there was some mention in the original version of the script, um, but then when I started working with Dan Martin, who was the effects artist. Um, who had uh, just gotten done working on uh, Possessor, I guess, when we were working together. We would just the basically, movie. you know, he, um, he's a, I think he does the Arrow video podcast, I believe. Um, he's a real big, I mean, he's just super knowledgeable about all this stuff. Um, and uh, I remember when the, when I was originally sent the script, there was a mention of uh, Terror the Android and I watched it and I was like, this is, it's part of what the reason I wanted to make the movie, because it's like, once you sort of combine that sort of modern creepypasta idea with, with a sort of eighties, um, Max Hedrum riff and kind of finding the similarities and the, and it was a nice way to kind of update it and make it our own. And then working with Dan Martin, we would just like sort of send pictures back and forth and, and we would rap forever about ideas and just try to like, uh, creep each other out as much as possible. And, and, um, 
that just developed from that. But then one of the, the major aspects of it that I haven't really talked about it. So I guess this is like an exclusive thing is that, um, so, so this is like a little Easter egg is that, is that Kelly Mack who plays, um, the female lead of the movie, Alice, um, she also plays Harry Shum's wife, ex, uh, dead wife. Um, and uh, not too many people know that. It's really surprising. I thought it was like super obvious, but no one really, really picks up on that. She plays both. And so that, yeah, no, so she that. plays both parts <laughs> and it's a fun aspect of it. And, but I had cast her, I like knew she was going to play the role I knew I wanted her for the role before we were, when we were still in pre-production and I was working with Dan, all this stuff. And I basically was like, we need to give her, we need to give the, the, um, the Android, like long flowing black gray, you know, black, uh, black hair, dark brunette hair. That's curly. And, um, kind of imitate the look of that right like so there was a combination of both uh i feel fantastic which is terror the android which is uh if if people listening have not seen it i it's definitely scarier than any it's definitely creepier than anything in my movie or pretty much anybody's movie it's it's the most um because it's so mundane you know it's because it's so i don't know there's something so sort of just like not intentionally scary about it that makes it like horrifying um and then yeah, also i sort of i'd sort of written into the thing this idea of this sitcom when i wanted to double down on the like uh max hedrum incident from what phil and tim the screenwriters had done i i wanted to kind of give a real life kind of analog and i really like coming up with all this stuff so me and my wife just sort of sat around thinking of, cause we're both like big eighties TV fans. Like she can basically sing, like you can play like the first three notes of any theme song from an eighties TV show. And she will like know what it is and sing along. Like we, we <laughs> sometimes just listen to those for fun and, you know, small wonder being one of the, also much like tear the Android, one of the most like upsetting things you'll ever watch in your life. Um, try to combine that with some of the like sort of failed sitcoms of the eighties and just sort of, I ended up writing this whole sort of synopsis of this television show, this Sally Sparks character in a show called Stepbot, Cause I wanted to kind of give the movie the feeling of like actually happening. Right. So I had to create these kind of things. Like I had to create the, the Don Kronos, which was like kind of our, our version of, uh, of, um, of a uh, doctor who, right. So um, it's really fun to right, kind of right, right. invent all of the like backstories for that. So like I wanted to kind of make them feel like fully realized things that actually exist. So like it may be hard to see, but there's actually like the one character we had is like two different shirts of, of Don Kronos. That was a shirt that I had sort of designed like in pre-production Um for that, just to kind of fill out the world with this stuff. So Sally Sparks, to answer your question, Sally Sparks, the character, also played into it because it was like, 
what would seem like it was like a mask that was like, you know, in the same way that there's the William Shatner mask for, for Halloween or that, you know, it, the Max Hedrum incident, it's like the only thing that makes it the Max Hedrum incident is the guy is just wearing a Max Hedrum mask, you know, because they made this. And it's like, what is the synthetic aspect of that? So um, how do you take this sort of like 80s iconography and like distort it and, and you know, when it's run through all that stuff, it, it becomes the most creepy. As we can see, especially, if you, you know, I'm sure if you go on like, 4chan or something that's where you can finally find all the most disturbing uses of pop culture ephemera but um <laughs> yeah it's it's it was just a matter of uh i don't know if that answered your question but that there was just a lot of different things that came together and then mostly like you know dan martin's sort of brilliance with the the makeup and and combining that with the terror the android and the and the kelly mac and the and the step bot and then we also were like we're like thinking of all these other sort of um, images and memes and things that we have seen. Like there was this Joanna Cassidy commercial. Um, I think it was like a say no to drugs ad from the eighties or early nineties. That was like, basically like she like rips her face off. Joanna Cassidy, who played Zora in Blade Runner. And oh, it's like this, it's like the most upsetting thing. And it was just like this commercial. Right. And so it's like, it's just really trippy. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where a, a lot of the inspiration comes from. But yeah, the, the, uh, the fun fact of the, of the, the Kelly being the inspiration for it is something I haven't really talked about much, which is exciting to kind of tell you guys about since you were talking about sort of tidbits and trivia and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's that's really cool to know. And and like I said, uh, I can see how it was a culmination of things, you know. But yeah, the the thing is, I feel that if the dolls had or the bots rather, I feel that if they looked more human, kind of like I guess sex dolls, you'd say nowadays. Like I don't feel that it would have been as creepy as the fact that like you can just tell there's something old and just like not write about these things. Like that that just looks creepy as shit to me. And um, I, I know that the film, you know, obviously was based on the uh, Max Headroom uh, uh, Headroom uh, signal hijacking incident. Um, I wanted to ask you what intrigued you about, you know, taking on a movie about that and kind of getting to expand on the whole hijacking and making it more deranged. Um, well, I really wanted to make, you know, we're talking about genres and one of the genres that is, you know, sort of, um, it has a sort of tangent. It's sort of, a. um, just just off to the side, uh, tangential to, ho to horror is the conspiracy thriller or the paranoia thriller. Um, you know, Blowout, Brian De Palma's Blowout, probably being my definitely top five favorite movies, if not sometimes n reaches number one. Um, but I also am a big fan of like uh, the Parallax View and All the President's Men and 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 the Alan Kula uh, paranoia trilogy and as well as, as, as many others. And, um, cause I don't really see the broadcast intrusion as a horror movie. Um, and it's not because I have any problem with horror movies, obviously I, I but I just like, if I was making a, if I was making it a horror movie, I would have like done it like a horror movie. You know, I would have made it like it, it just it turned out that the, that the intrusions were, scarier than we even realized the concept of 
of taking something, like I said, that, that you recognize, but is off is the most, like you were just saying is the most upsetting thing. Right. Um, but I really wanted to kind of make a updated version of conspiracy thrillers, uh, paranoia thrillers, like, you know, in the conversation also. And especially since it was like someone, um, analyzing forensically analyzing a piece of media to solve like a sort of grander conspiracy that may or may not actually exist. And, but I also wanted to update it because I was kind of thinking, I was like, well, I like conspiracy thrillers, but they kind of are really only work for the seventies and just a little bit into the early eighties because of the events like Watergate and the JFK assassination, those kind of things. But now it feels like, in the real world, especially when I started working on the movie, that one of the more terrifying things was actually the conspiracy theorists and some of the conspiracy theories that were maybe not. I mean, like, look, we know what Nixon did. It's on tape. You know what I mean? Like, but whether Donald Trump is trying to save us from a child sex ring or something is like, I don't, that's not something you can prove or disprove. You know what I mean? That's just, it's uh, just craziness, right? So, um, or flat earth theory or something, you know, where you're just like, what is this? And so that, but then, but then when it, when certain things reach like a level of like feeling like, oh, I'm actually more, I mean, I'm not as afraid of like the dark shadow because of Twitter, I'm not as afraid of the dark shadowy governmental forces. I'm actually more because I have so much more access to the government and to these bigger sort of cabals that we used to think of as being shadowy. Whereas now it feels like someone who will go and shoot up a pizza place because they think there's a child sex ring in the basement is actually very terrifying. And but what is it about? But but not sort of condemning it or 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 praising it, but sort of like what is you know a lot of this stuff is going on. Like you know, like I was just saying, like. QAnon and what have you was was happening was really starting to happen and I was like how do I take this one kind of genre and update it and it basically was like trying to combine and I saw this script as a really good opportunity to combine my love of paranoia thrillers with like an updating of it that makes it like um, that makes it maybe speak to more of a modern sensibility so that it so that the movie can kind of like start out as blowout and then kind of become taxi driver. Do you know what I mean? Like where it's like you were the, where, what is the dangers of actually, because I'm not, I'm not free of this myself. I don't know if you guys are like this, but like I've gone on YouTube wormholes that are crazy and they last for days. Right. Like, like where it's just where I just get really (laughs) obsessed with things and the true, the veracity of these things is not necessarily that important to me. The, um, it's just fascinating, right? Like, you know, whether it's like D.B. Cooper is something that I just go intensely on. And I think it's like, I think we all could be subject to, you know, finding an obsession with a true crime. I mean, just look at the rise of true crime, right? And I've, I'm, I'm just as obsessed with, with true crime as anybody else and have been for a long time. And I think that, um, that I, that just trying to map those things onto this story just seemed really interesting to do because ultimately it's just a dude watching videos and that, that can be really boring. But what if we made it 
really subjective and made it like from his point of view, because in his mind, he's not just watching videos in his mind. He is Woodward and Bernstein. You know what I mean? Like he is. And, um, yeah. in his mind, he, yeah, he's, you know, Robert Graysmith or whatever, you know? Um, so that was really the, the draw to it. Uh, because I would actually say that, that, and there's really scary things in, you know, like that's that's another aspect of horror is that there are lots of movies that are really terrifying that aren't necessarily fit inside of a genre framework. You know what I mean? Like um, something like Children of Men, the first Absolutely. time you see it, can be like just unbelievably haunting and upsetting and scary and you know, or the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. I mean, is that, that's, is that not scary? I mean, I remember I was walking out of that theater, like thinking I was going to get shot, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that one of the great sort of hallmarks of, of the, of the uh, conspiracy thriller movies like the parallax view is that they are very, very haunting and they have a lot of, and the, the mystery of it, the fear of the unknown has a lot of aspects that are really correlative to to horror movies and like what we love about horror movies. You know, I mean, one of my favorite horror movies of all time is um, Cat People, the original um, Jacques Tourneur uh, Val Luton movie. Have you guys seen that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that movie has no... Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, it's, it's like it couldn't be further away from Evil Dead 2 in terms of like explicit, you know, what have you. And, but it's, but it, but it really gets under your skin. And I think that, um, the best of the conspiracy thrillers really can do that too. I mean, something like the conversation has some of the scariest things in a movie I've ever seen, you know, and Coppola started out doing dementia 13, just like pretty much every other filmmaker you respect, they start out with piranha Two: the spawning, right? Um, or, uh, or um, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> the howling, or what have you. Joe, you know, John Sayles, even the guy who <laughs> made Lone Star, is like a big writer of those. So yeah, um, so that was all. That was all part of it. Uh, and uh, and 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 the Queensbury was very intent on not having to make it fit into the box of like we need this to happen every. You know, because I love slasher movies, right? Like slasher movies is probably one of my favorite genres. But I got to make, th- I got to make three slasher Same movies, and when I did that, I wanted to make it like, as I wanted to, you know, uh, I wanted to like fulfill the the needs of that genre as much as possible. You know, I really wanted to like do do a slasher movie and be acknowledging of the entire history of slasher movies. And especially when I was doing those movies, I really got deep on slasher movies and really fell in love with with the form. But slasher movies, one of the things that's great about them is the pre- predictability of them, right? Like they they have a, a structure to them that is that's what's enjoyable about it. Is that you're like, okay, there's these kids there's six of them one of them is going to live at the end and the rest of them are going to get killed systematically throughout the movie right like it is it's that's the joy of it you're like 
it's like a it's like a blues song where it's like verse chorus verse you know bridge you know what have you and there's like the best slasher movies to me are the ones that don't get too far away from what that is you know what i mean like um i mean that's why scream holds up right i mean i know it's a more modern slasher movie but the reason that movie is such a masterpiece is because it sticks to the formula and acknowledges the formula in a meta way while still doing it really effectively yep and i think that that um but but the conspiracy thriller or a thriller doesn't necessarily have the same kind of formula when you're not talking about a serial killer movie, you know, because a movie like seven or a movie like, um, I don't know, like another serial, like Zodiac or something, you know, there's more modern serial killer movies. Like it has a very similar sort of structure to a slasher movie, but a conspiracy thriller doesn't necessarily have that form to it. It has a lot more to do with like, um the feeling of paranoia circling around you and what and what is causing those things and um right. and using techniques like the 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 cat people or or um I walk with a zombie which is another great Jacques Tourneur Val Gluten movie. Um but yeah so that's a really long way of answering your question. Um <laughs> Well, I just, yeah, I got excited about answer. it, you know, it's just because it, that's, 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 and, uh, I, I feel like it, just one last thing is that I feel like it was also something I hadn't seen a lot of recently, right? Like there wasn't, I mean, even, even since we made the movie, absolutely, there's been a little bit more of a resurgence of these kind of movies, which, you know, when I first started working on it a few years ago, um, there wasn't, it was kind of like a, it's kind of like, you know how like people are talking a lot about erotic thrillers right now, you know, um, uh, yeah. that was starting to happen that with, with conspiracy thrillers. Um, and, uh, and I think a lot of it obviously has to do with whatever the current political system is, but, um, but I just really wanted to, to jump on that. Anyway, that's just... <clears throat> Yeah, you were talking about going like down YouTube holes. I've talked on the show before about I do that with Wikipedia. So I actually was familiar with Captain Midnight, and I kind of liked that there was a nod, nod to him in the Florida intrusion story. I feel like a lot of people my age, that's kind of how we were introduced to this whole idea of like hijacking signals. Was that was that your first experience, or was it the Max Hedrum? I was only vaguely familiar with these things. I think maybe Captain Midnight. It's hard to know when I because I I'd submerged myself so deeply into this stuff when to make the movie that I'm it's, it's hard to really remember what I knew beforehand, you know, because I got so involved in it. Right. Like I, yeah. I got real deep on captain midnight and that was why I, I sort of included it in the movie and our own version of captain midnight. Um, Same. <laughs> why am I blanking on the name that I came up with? What is it? The night pirate. Yeah. The Night Pirate was great because that was yeah. It's yeah, one of those yeah. things that's like it's kind of funny, but it's only funny if you know about Captain Midnight, you know. Um, and Captain yeah. Midnight wouldn't make as interesting of a movie because they, I mean, it was they found the guy. He was mad about the prices of. I mean, he, it, like his motives were not unclear, and they pretty swiftly, not not that swiftly, but they caught up with him. You know, they they got him. He was in Florida. It was because of his of his business in Florida and how he and um, 
but yeah, yeah, that's really fun to come up with that. Um, that's my voice. I did. This is the night pirate. And then, you know. Oh, yeah. wow. Nice. That's, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. Well, um, so, uh, who, um, designed the intrusion segments? You had mentioned Dan Martin. So did he, did he design the intrusion segments or was that, um, your production designer, Sarah Sharp? Yeah. Dan designed this stuff. I mean, like, like I said, when we were working together, we were talking about, you know, what the, we would kind of go back and forth sharing, like what, you know, what it was going to be. And then because of, because of budget, he was actually in, we were working, this is actually before the pandemic, but we were working, he was in London and I was in Chicago. And so, you know, they were sort of building the set and everything there. And, um, and, uh, James Swanton is this amazing actor who has this really great, he's really thin and lithe and has great ability to move. But then Dan also did a uh, animatronics, you know, um, there's the one sequence that we did that we did shoot, uh, in Chicago, which was the, which was the scene where there's one on the ground for those who haven't seen the movie. I'll just say vaguely, there was a, there's a, our, our yeah, hero right, encounters right. one of these things and, and it's, um, and that was, you know, and then the mask, obviously, we had, they'd sent over after they filmed it. But yeah, those, those sequences were kind of designed by him. And then I sort of put them together and mapped them on TVs and, and all that. Yeah. Just so sort of, also sort of establishing okay, the dream great. sequences, well, uh... too, was just something I came up with editing, which was there was a couple of, of, of beats. There was a couple of sequences that were like just taking scraps of stuff that Dan had shot just cause he did a bunch of like takes where he would just like do fucked up things to the, to the mask, to the Android or to the animatronics or whatever he would just kind of do. He would just kind of riff. Like once he got the necessary stuff that we had talked about getting, like then he would just kind of riff. And then I took a lot of that stuff and I just kind of built these little sequences. And then, cause I really wanted to include them in the movie. So there was like a whole sec, there was like a couple of sections where James is having these dreams of it, you know? And then, yeah. So the, and then the intrusions that are not all the other stuff with the intrusions is like, is like various other stuff. Like, so the Sally Sparks, like opening that was actually shot by David Bruckner. Um, the Sally Sparks intro. Yeah. Um, oh, because wow. it was, we, I, we had to do that in the pandemic and I had cut together like a little, like I had basically taken all these different things. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, there's this old movie called not quite human. It was like a Disney like robot movie. I took this old sick, this old canceled sitcom with Elizabeth Pena called I married Dora and the guy from Hardcastle McCormick. And I took like, um, took like a little bit of small wonder and like a little bit of stuff. And I kind of cut it all together. And then him and, and, and since it was at sort of the beginning of the pandemic, um, Dave and his wife, Zoe, who they actually like just basically shot for shot imitated all of the shots that I, I put together and then sent them to me. And so they, cause I already cut the sequence together and already done all the, like, you know, mapping it on the TV and, you know, the reflection of, of, of Harry Shum jr. in the television and everything. And then, and then we, we 
we put it put it in and that was actually very satisfying too so there's another another easter egg is that they shot that during the pandemic and it was really fun because he was you know he had just gotten done shooting another movie or was about to so it's probably really fun for him to just kind of film things and then he got a little obsessed about it uh i was like i just need to i was like we were, we were kind of like sending each other prop stuff and he was like we got to use this we got to use this fake arm or whatever for the you know like for the robot thing and it's, it was just really funny of like you know like i we had like a wig my wife is obsessed with weird al yankovic so we had like a weird al wig that we like took over to his house and like kind of dropped it off you know staying safe distance it was back when we were still not you know you weren't really hanging out with people in person i don't know if you guys were doing this in delaware but in la we were very um segmented so that was really fun yeah so that was so yes so dan did design like the 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 masks and the and those kind of things but there's lots of different stuff going on in the movie that's that's really fun including uh the 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 foot like the footage that is interrupted by the intrusions is actually um the second intrusion in the movie is actually the thing that we use as a scene from don chronos is actually a scene from dark shadows you guys dark shadows fans and um the original dark shadows and oh yeah it was really lucky too because fortunately mpi who was the company that paid for the movie they actually distribute dark shadows but dark shadows so i was like maybe there's a little bit of dark shadows that we can use in the movie um as don chronos because it'd be really hard to shoot that uh just with our limited time and everything i wanted to kind of shoot it and but to get the camera the kind of camera that we would need and the to build the sets and all that stuff and i got was just like well i need i wonder if there's something that doesn't have the main people in it so you don't go that's dark shadows um and up right like exactly no barnabas no angelique and but fortunately fortunately and un Fortunately, for the purposes of what I was trying to do, there are 900 episodes of Dark Shadows or something. Like it, it played every day. It was essentially like a soap yeah. opera, and yeah, um, it was a lot. <laughs> and but unfortunately, having to sift through 900 episodes and the ones that were like already sort of remastered, um, Todd Winky at MPI actually like did a lot of help, helped me a lot. But I did a lot of research in that, and I got really lucky and found this like perfect scene that like spoke to some of the themes of the movies. And I, you know, sort of cut it together to make it. And it was a character that kind of, so I kind of worked backwards from that. And that was really, and we were really fortunate that the dark shadows estate, uh, allowed us to use the clip in the movie. Um, and even using it for our own. Cause you guys seen the original Max Hedrum incident. Oh, you haven't no. seen i've seen it so the first one is interrupting like sports right so for those listening to this that don't know the max hedgerman incident was like a a broadcast student intrusion that happened in chicago in 1987 and basically during like the the sports of channel 11 um dan i'm blanking on his last name anyway uh he was announcing the sports and then just it there's like static and then it breaks in with this video of a guy in a Max Hedrum mask, like speaking in this distorted voice and like make it just speaking like 
you know, like swearing and then like saying things about the employees there. And it's, it's actually really hard to understand what he's saying, but it, he's just like acting a fool in front of like this spinning aluminum like plate. Um, and it's real lo-fi. And, yeah. And he's a big Pepsi yeah. fan. And, uh, and at the time, Max Hedrum was like a very popular phenomenon in the world or whatever. Um, but uh, it was just a mask on a guy. And then they cut back and they were like, they didn't know what the fuck happened, right? Later that night on PBS, they were showing an episode of Doctor Who and the same thing happened. Um, except this time he had like a dildo and he was like getting spanked on his bare ass and everything. It was the same dude, <laughs> same thing, but it was just like even more sort of, uh, indiscreet. And once they sort of started to investigate this, they realized you needed very sophisticated equipment to be able to do something like this. It wasn't like the easiest thing in the world to just hack a television signal in the eighties. Um, especially one where you'd have to basically like hack into the signal coming off of a, uh, off of the Hancock building. Um, so it's also unsolved to this day. So yeah, that was, yeah. Anyway, just to kind of give a backstory on that, I forgot what was I saying before that? Uh, what were, what were you what were you asking? I'm sorry. Uh, I was asking about um, Dan Martin and like the contribution he had to making the masks and things like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant mask creation there. Really good stuff. And the animatronics and the cutting eyeballs. <clears throat> yeah, and, and you had said, you know, you were just bringing up the uh, actual incidences. And uh, I believe uh, the second one that was the intro that uh, interrupted Doctor Who, that one was like 90 seconds. I haven't seen it, but I did a lot of research on it. I think that one was longer than the first one, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of theories, a lot of really interesting theories about what who they were, who, who it was. And they, those theories have continued on well into the last 10 years. You know what I mean? At this point, I think people are pretty much just given up on right. it, but there was even like a, there were some Reddit threads a few years ago that were pretty compelling because someone had a theory about it. There was a, a performance artist named Shay St. John, um, that people from that area of the Midwest, like know who it is, who does these YouTube videos that are like, kind of similar um, to what we did in the movie, but more sort of prankish. And uh, okay. that that uh, performance artist, I, I believe she's Pat. And then there was a, another theory. Yeah, there was a theory that it was the, that it was Shea, Shea St. John, um, who was in like this punk band and like, you know, did those, did those YouTube videos and had a following, but then tragically passed away. Um, yeah. So there's just a lot of really interesting little avenues you can go down. I mean, it definitely, when you're talking about broadcast signal intrusions, there's definitely a lot of like obsessive like roads you can go down if you choose to. And that was kind <laughs> of, and because, because even, I mean, I know that the, the, that Phil Drinkwater and Tim Good, Good all were like, inspired by it when they were writing the original version of the script, but like, um, but no one told me about it when I was got involved with the movie, like nobody involved with the movie mentioned Max Hedgerman's and, and it was just something that I ended up finding in research that, Oh, I was like, Oh, there's a lot more connections to this. And then 
sort of tripling down on that. And because I had just done so much research about it that I was like, I became like a little bit of a little bit obsessive about it's funny. I keep making these movies about obsessive people going down wormholes and, you know, my previous movie synchronicity, he literally goes into a wormhole. Um, but, uh, (laughs) but then I find myself like kind of art imitating life with the main characters, you know, like I got just as obsessed with like uncovering. I remember I went real deep trying to be like, Somehow I was going to, by reading Reddit, I was going to figure out who did the Max Hedrum incident. <laughs> but, you, you know, reading Reddit's not interesting for a, the puzzle. Yeah, reading Reddit's not interesting for a movie. So you have to have him go and explore and run into, like, really odd people in in dark corners of, uh, of Chicago and Illinois. And, you know, he has, to, he has to meet somebody under a bridge in Chinatown, get the information. So... He has to meet Deep Throat. <laughs> he has to meet Deep Throat. I'm glad you picked up on that connection. Yeah, that was definitely. <laughs> yeah, which that's actually like an anachronism because the because Chinatown in the movie is did not look like that in the. Um, I wish I could have gotten his period detail as once upon a time in in, in <laughs> Hollywood, but I didn't have the ninety million dollars or even a fraction of that, so we had to kind of just hope that the people who live in Chicago aren't too mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the score by Ben Lovett is, uh, is seriously creepy, especially around the hour and 25 mark. And, uh, I wanted to ask you, cause I'm a big fan of Jallo films and Italian horror. Uh, there is definitely like a Jallo essence to the score. Was that something that you, you discussed with Ben or is that something that he just kind of came up with organically when he was composing? Yeah, I mean, we we definitely discussed it. I um, I my technique with Ben is actually very interesting. I've made I've known Ben since the '90s. Like I'm, we're like he's one of my closest friends. He's a brother. Like, and we've he's done the music for every single movie that I've done. And for this one, I really wanted basically the sound of the movies that I was inspired by, you know, <coughs> the sound of something like the parallax view or marathon man, or, you know, David, um, small, Michael small, sorry. Uh, Michael small, David Shire, uh, that kind of stuff. And the Jallo aspect, there was actually, when I did the temp score, because I do, I do like really, really involved temp scores. And I know that that seems counterintuitive, for a brilliant artist such as Ben, but we've worked together long enough now that I know he's not going to try to copy it. He's going to do his own thing, but it's going to give him the like intention of it, you know? Um, But one of the main things we discuss pretty early on is with everything that we've done together, we always try to do something completely different and tackle a new style of, of, of music and like so for our movie the synchronicity that was you know we did all synth stuff and he ended up you know that had a lot of like Blade Runner influence in it and he ended up going you know because he's in Asheville he's in Asheville and that's where Moog is and so he ended up going there and like you know working with them and using some of their synthesizers to create this like synthesized score for the movie 
you know, um, we did another movie where it was like, it had a more of a kind of a Western vibe to it. And he uses like old instruments. Um, I know that for a movie like uh, Chris Allender's The Old Ways, like the kind of things he does. So he's really brilliant in that way. So I, w- I sort of like used a lot of like Goblin and Michael Small and David Shire. And um, I really like, there's like the proggy aspect of Jello music that's like I love, right? Like the Goblin stuff, yeah. especially. Yep. Uh, um, they did Deep Red, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 That was a big cue. Yep. That was yep. a big Definitely. cue for one section that I was like, this is something like in this, in this, you know, the. And there's that. I mean, Jello is also a. And just to digress a second, the Jallo is a very influential aspect of this. I should have mentioned that because Jallo and and the conspiracy thrillers I was talking about the seventies are like actually very intertwined. You know, I mean, something like you know, uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, kind of, or or even Deep Red, Deep Red even more so because he's not a detective. He's not like the the idea of someone who's not uh, law enforcement or anything like going deep on a mystery i mean you could even argue that something like deep red is a conspiracy thriller you know what i mean like it has a lot of the same functions and stuff yeah except it has one of the scariest sequences i've ever seen in a movie um and i don't scare easy guys i'm just telling you right now and i don't even need weed to say that i just i like do not it is really hard (laughs) it is really hard to freak me out so if i say something scary then it then to me it's like it's got to be like just hitting this perfect sweet spot spot because movies don't usually scare me. Um, but yeah, like Ben Lovett is brilliant. And um, we were, I was sort of developing this sound with him that was antiquated, you know, didn't have that, that, you know, we also kind of want to do stuff that's like forms that you don't hear as much in scores anymore. You know I mean? It's like, it's like that thing where it just felt like everybody just, only listen to John Carpenter for like, you know, five years of just like movies where I'm just like, well, don't, don't you guys, there's other kinds of music, you know what I mean? That can tell a story. And it's been really nice to see the response to the music in this movie, because I think Ben did such a good job. And like the fact that people like it, even though it's not something that you're used to, I think that the fact that it's not silly, you know, I mean, one of the things that Ben did bring to it was the, the, the horns in it. You know, um, the the idea of that sort of jazz inflection in it was definitely like me sort of saying, like, here are the main influences. Here is the like the vibe of this. Um, Then he would kind of like develop his own thing. And he even did this great thing where he we talked a lot about this early on, which is like, how do we imitate the sound of like this movie is a very analog movie right it has a very kind of tape it's very it's very focused on this sort of like retro technology because even the movie even though the movie set in 99 the movie is retro for 99 right like it's in 1999 the equipment he's the equipment the main character is using in the movie was already way outdated by 1999 and ben actually did this thing where he took all of the individual parts of the of the of the score and he recorded them out to 
a VHS deck, like a high a high end VHS deck, and then use those to reassemble the pieces. So he fil yeah, so he oh, wow. filtered it through yeah, so he cool. made it so he made what doing something in Pro Tools, but he had an analog intermediary process that was really fascinating. He has this he sent me the, he would send me these little like videos of like the the tape on a on magnetic reels and everything, like like as he was recording. He, he tried all these different things to sort of combine this stuff and then sort of bringing in this horn aspect um, was great. I think one of the greatest, most underrated scores of all time, which does sound like a Jello score. It's not a Jello movie technically, but it's uh, have you guys ever heard the score for Death Wish 2? I've never listened to just the score, but I'm familiar with the movie. I mean, the music is awesome. The, it's a little harder to find because it's not a popular score, but you can find it on YouTube or whatever. But that score is ugh, chef's kiss. It's so good. It's so weird. It's so dark and scary. It's not like anything you could you imagine. So that was a huge influence too. But yeah, the Jallo aspect, the the jazzy kind of, I mean, I don't really like to use the term jazz because I don't really think of it as jazz, but it has like more of a jazz influence. But that's the same kind of thing that like something like, david uh, shire or michael small had when they were making movies like you know marathon man or parallax view or clute clute probably is the biggest influence you guys seen clute clute is like a, i would call it like in the same way that de palma and de palma was kind of doing american jello which i always sort of think of like his his sort of thrillers as being like american jello yeah, like definitely. i feel like um Pakula, Pakula definitely was taking stuff from Argento and Fulci and those guys and like um and uh and with something like Clute especially because that movie isn't really about anything particularly scary, but is one of the most sort of haunting and you know unsettling movies you could watch. And the score is absolutely brilliant. If you do not have this score, I highly recommend it. Um especially when you get on vinyl because these scores, especially like if you're listening to Goblin, it always sounds better on vinyl. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not a vinyl purist, but Goblin on vinyl is the way to go because it just, there's like, it's the same thing as having like the, the grain of the film that they use for, you know, Suspiria. It's like, you, you want that, you want that sound and the, you know, there's a great uh, Mondo release of uh, Suspiria soundtrack if you don't have it highly recommend that too oh yeah the Suspiria um, soundtrack's yeah. amazing yeah that that one yeah that one's amazing but ben's brilliant and he's he's so smart about ways to make the music a character in and of itself and that's in the sense that like it there's voices the voice aspect of it was something we talked a lot about because that and the way that he used the voice of the la 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 like mm -hmm. the it corresponded to what was going on with the main character, whether it was the, the the missing women he was investigating or his missing wife that he was lamenting and also investigating. And there are even sections of the movie where it feels like this sort of present feminine voice is actually like conversing with him and following him around and like haunting him. There's even this great shot in the movie great shot it sounds so arrogant like <laughs> i have this great shot in my in my own movie no but i mean it's great because of what ben did which was that harry walks up 
he's he's searching the archive. It's like kind of like a very Jallo inspired sequence in the movie. It's like the one Jallo inspired sequence where he's sort of like searching the library for this noise that he keeps hearing. And he walks up and he looks down the row of the archive, these uh, row of uh, stacks, the, the shelves. And you, and the way that Ben recorded the, the music and the way he timed it, it sounds like he looks down the, the way and you hear la la la. And it's very faint, but it's like, it feels like it's speaking to him and calling him like a siren, you know? Mm. Um, I don't know. Just, he's just, he's just, a, he's just a genius. And that's all he does is just, he sits in Asheville and he makes brilliant music for all these movies. And if the people listening aren't familiar with his music, I highly recommend, you know, just searching for him. It may take a second because there's a guy from Mumford and Sons. I think it, or one of these bands is named Ben Lovett. He was around the same age as Ben who also has like a beard and like, you know, the same general look as him, like good looking dude from, you know, like from the South and like, but Ben's music um, scores for like stuff like, like his score for the ritual is really good. And uh, one of my favorite scores he did, like one of my top, top scores is I Trap the Devil. Are you guys familiar with that movie? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I Trap the Devil score is, is awesome. And that's really interesting, too, because that was a score he did very quickly and he did very. But it was like there was just some pieces in that that I just fucking love. Um, and the ritual, I think, is one of the coolest because the way that he kind of builds the monster sounds through what he does with the score in that is is tremendous. Um, yeah, great. Great guy. Don't have any good things to say about him. <laughs> well, um what was the most challenging thing that you faced while filming broadcast signal intrusion? The most challenging thing. Well, outside of the, just the challenge of making a movie, a small movie, um, with a very limited budget and everything. Um, let's see most, this always, it always trips me up because I have these, I have like a million different things. And then when I get asked this question, I always, I always start to blank. Um, the most challenging thing was trying to give a sense of import to something that was not on paper, not that big a deal to a modern audience. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, <clears throat> okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, because there's a lot of challenges in terms of time and money and the fact that we had like 20 locations, but only like less days than that to shoot the movie. And, you know, um, there's all those normal things that are kind of boring to talk about, but, but then there's like the, you know, and there's the period aspects on a low budget, which is like, instead of being like, we had to find cars, it's like, you have to kind of get rid of cars, you know, you know, um, but uh, I'd say it's it's because when you when I first was sort of working on this, I was like, there's something unsettling in about this, but there's nothing particularly on paper that's scary about what's happening because you're essentially watching a guy watch videos, and then there's not really like a specific murder. 
There's no sort of like force of antagonism that's like immediate. There's not an immediate threat to him. And how do you give the sense of like, I shouldn't be watching this, you know? Like, I don't know if you guys have ever had that feeling, but like, yeah, that's yeah. kind of one of the most sort of like a sense of dread. Yeah, like, well, I mean, like, there are creepy pastas that you can watch where you're like, you're worried that you you've stumbled upon something that you're not supposed to see, right? Like, this is just, I'm not supposed to look at this. Like, no matter how voyeuristic you are, part of the thrill of it and part of the, 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 the fear of it is that, like, is this even something that was meant, you know, you do start to feel like Nicolas Cage in 8mm where he's, like, watching the film and he's, like, you know. Um, but it's it's, like, but how do you make that, like, compelling and give it scope and make it feel like there's you know, real, like a real world around him, you know? Um, right. And, uh, and I think that was really challenging because, you know, we're all, I was one of the, you know, I'm talking like I'm ancient, I'm not that old, but like I was probably one of the older people on the set. I mean, you know, my, <laughs> my production designer, this, and costume designer who was this wonderful, uh, artist, producer, creative, genius, uh, Sarah Sharp, um, who did both the cost. She's a much younger than I am. And, and, and even Harry Shum is much, not much, him and I are closer to the same age, but, but like, that was a big challenge is trying to like, because I was, I was an adult when the movie is set, but a lot of the people involved with the movie weren't, were like little kids. So they don't know what, a loft apartment was in 1999, but I lived in a loft apartment in 1999. You know what I mean? I was pretty young, but like I said, I was the aforementioned apartment I lived in with Bruckner in, in downtown Atlanta. And, um, and that was a huge challenge to try to like make it feel real, but also make it feel like important and make it feel like the stakes were really high when they may have not on paper seemed like they were and make it seem like Definitely. make it seem like a big deal without trying to be too hokey about it you know without having some aaron sorkin monologue where someone's like this is the most important thing ever audience you should be listening to this you know it's like um <laughs> i don't know why i said it so dismissively aaron sorkin's one of my heroes so i don't know uh but uh but yeah, um, <laughs> just like I just listening to that, you'd think that I like hated Aaron Sorkin. Uh, I don't think he's a very good director, but I I think he's a genius writer. Um, but yeah, like uh, yeah, I don't know if that that's kind of a vague thing. You kind of want me to say like we're shooting downtown. We did have a rain day, and that was really challenging because we had to shoot the like we had to shoot something. We were sp- and we were supposed to shoot the like, the the control room stuff, which is about thirty percent of the movie, where he's just in the room with the editing equipment and everything. But it wasn't ready yet; it wasn't built in time, and we had to shoot in this like field where there's like this dream sequence where she's running in in the in through the grass and and all these sorts of things, and and it was raining, and we got to the place that we were supposed to shoot and the people were like go away you you don't you're not supposed to be here um and we were like what and so then we were like then we just were like well maybe we go steal it at the park 
And then the producers and I freaked out about that. So then we just basically had to go to like the executive producer's house and like turn a corner of their yard and make it look like an actual park. Um, and it was raining. So the poor actors, it was freezing because it's Chicago in October. So I don't know if you guys have been to Chicago, but it's the coldest place ever. Um, and the other most challenging, the other <laughs> most challenging thing was lung health in the, uh, there's this, there's this amazing location in the movie, which is this house in the sort of third act of the movie. That's like the greatest location that I've ever used for this kind of thing, because you guys know what I'm talking about. You know, the house I'm talking about in the movie that that's like, he goes to where the final, the final boss house, basically where he like, it's out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that house is like that inside. Yep. I mean, it looks like some kind of true detective nightmare on the inside. It looks like the yellow King's house. Right. Um, it was like that when we showed up, like all of the stuff that's in there, everything that's <laughs> all, that was all there. I looked at Sarah, the production designer. And I said, this is going to be the best thing on your reel. And you're not going to have to do a damn thing because it was amazing. I mean, it was like the perfect, it looked like it was art directed. I've, it looked more art directed than Halloween horror nights at universal studios, those mazes where they do these elaborate things. Like it was amazing. The problem was, was that because it was like basically a rotting corpse of a house, there was a little bit of a trouble breathing um, in that house. Like you definitely felt like you were getting like, yeah. Okay. So like at the end of the day we had to like go outside and like, uh, and like take to like get real oxygen because I think we were getting all black mold. I think we all had severe lung damage from that. Um, and then there was also this crazy thing where there were like voices. I don't know if it was just because I was wearing headphones, you know, to listen to the sound or whatever, but, and I'm not a superstitious person. I don't really even believe in ghosts, but I was hearing these voices and I kept running outside to like tell the, and I told the AD, I was like, get, tell the, tell them to shut up outside, you know, the rest of the crew outside. And they were like, there no, nobody's out there. Nobody's talking. And I was like, what are you talking? And then I went out there, I was like convinced. And I was like, what the fuck? Oh, sure. And then I kept hearing it. And I mean, the Occam's razor of it all, just like broadcast signal intrusion, is probably that there was probably some interference with the radio mics or something. The you know, because when you when you when you're directing or working on a movie, you have these. When you're directing, you have like uh, headphones that are hooked up to a little thing on your a little receiver that you have on your belt, right? So you can hear mm -hmm. what the sound guy is getting, the sound mix. Um, so it may have been that, but it also could have been the years and years. I mean, what was underneath those old antique radios and weird oddities? Like, um, was it Great Gardens? It was like a Great Gardens house. And it was like, what is in there? Maybe there are people in the walls. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a superstitious person. I don't necessarily believe in the supernatural. But that tested my limits of my skepticism, for sure. Oh, wow. Um, well, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, so uh, especially a specific scene that you had mentioned earlier where there's a bot on the ground, but really throughout the whole film, due to the bot aspect, I feel that there's a Halloween feel to the film. Was that done on purpose, or is that just you know me looking too much into it, bots and bots? You mean Halloween 3? Or... 
Yeah, Halloween three. Yeah, um, the way that there was uh the bots on Halloween three. Okay, I thought you said yeah. I thought you said how. I thought you said Halloween. Oh uh, no. Uh, well, I'll tell you. It's funny you mentioned that because Halloween three is my Halloween movie. It's not. I mean, it's. I'm not saying it's the best one, but it's the, it's it's my um. That's John it's right my here. Yearly. Uh. <laughs> like every 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 Halloween, I watch it. It's like my tradition, and that's like fucking. That's one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. Um. But yeah, there's def. I'm sure. Because of the amount of times I've seen that movie and how upset, how much I love it, I'm sure that that snuck in there somewhere. But like I was talking earlier about James Swanson, the robot aspect is actually something that develops where he starts as like just a person in a mask. Then he actually performed as a robot because he's so good it actually looks like it's hard to distinguish what he's doing from the animatronics. And then we were using puppeteered animatronics for the, like, as the, as the progression of the, of the intrusions goes on. So, yeah, I would say that Halloween three is definitely, a, um, okay. you can imagine too, that it'd be like, one of the fun things about Halloween three is how easy, like it's, what are those things called in Phantom Menace? Those like, stupid robots that like you just breathe on and they fall over you know it's like the battle droids yeah it's not quite that bad but like for being as strong and being able to like you know like basically like reach their hand into a person's face and like destroy them they sure do like fall apart real easy like you just have to smack you just have to smack one of them and their goddamn head flies off and you're just like okay and then the blue shit comes out right but uh i do like the guy who like blows himself up in the car that might be my favorite um because he just goes in the hospital and he kills that guy and then he goes to his car and he just lights himself on fire (laughs) oh that movie rules i just want to digress real quick fucking tom atkins is there a better like lead? Like I love Harry Shum Jr. I think he's amazing. He's too fucking good looking. He's too cool. Tom Atkins is like so perfect as this just it's so weird. He's like this ladies man, but he, there's like nothing about them that if you just were to explain him to somebody, he's like he's got pock marks and he's kind of He's kind of bloated and and he drinks all the time and he's kind of a he's a little bit he's a little bit you know predatory, uh, but god damn it, do I just want to like hang out with that dude in movies like forever? Like him during the fog, like you know, um, Halloween three, uh, Night of the Creeps, kind of Night of the Creeps, yeah, Night of the Creeps era, like that. That shit is just like nothing better. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to like go off topic, but I just, I just. Oh no, no, you're fine. We absolutely love Tom Atkins. What do you think is your Tom favorite? Fucks. Yeah, Tom Atkins fucks. What I for me it's Halloween three because <laughs> Tom Atkins literally fucks in that movie a whole lot because even the women in the movie he doesn't, even the people in the movie he doesn't fuck, like want him to fuck them. Right, like they all want, like <laughs> the true. most. He doesn't. He doesn't even fuck the most attractive 
I think that the doc or the not the the person who works in the 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 woman who works in the lab, she's the most attractive. I think she's even more attractive than the than the the woman he ends up hanging out with. I'm forgetting the actress's name, but the the woman Susan who works Oka. in the lab is just like. When are you gonna fuck me, Tom Atkins? <laughs> she, he's just like, I'll get to it, you know. I'll get to it. <laughs> worry, yeah, Halloween three is my favorite Tom Atkins movie. Yeah, there's no, the only the only person that competes with Tom Atkins in that era is Stacy Keach in that era, because Road Games Stacy Keach is definitely in the Tom Atkins school of like unlikely Lothario, like sex machine like guy you just want to like smoke lots of cigarettes and drink beer with you know get high and, and reminisce <laughs> you know love those guys i uh i gotta ask about um so so the movie's all about searching for closure so is it a conscious choice to make the ending so ambiguous just to mess with us all I think it's intentionally ambiguous, but not as much as some people have taken it. I I feel like there's a lot more clues in the movie. I feel like if I feel like multiple viewings, if 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 one were so inclined, would reward would be rewarding because I don't think it would be as ambiguous. Um but I also think you're talking about an unsolved mystery. And if you're familiar with the paranoid conspiracy, you know, I'm like, I'm like not, I'm not big on ambiguity for ambiguity's sake, uh, but it's a subjective movie. And, you know, the idea that there's also this aspect too, that I find really is kind of like a question too with these kind of movies is that, the reveal is always a letdown, right? Like yeah. when you pull back the curtain and see the wizard, it's always a bummer. I mean, that's wizard of Oz is all about how much of a boring bummer it is, you know? Um, but I do feel like the, the truth is revealed in the movie. It's just a matter of like, uh, putting it all together. I think when you're looking at it from a subjective point of view, it's just not as like, it's just not, I think the movie isn't as ambiguous as some have said, but I, I think it requires a little bit of effort. It's not a second screen movie. You know, it's not a movie, unfortunately, because I'm, you know, I'm maybe beyond, you know, after my time, you know, the kind of movies I like where, you know, it's not a movie you can be texting with someone or on social media when you're watching it. Because there's a lot of visual clues that are there that are that too tell you exactly what's going on in the movie, but we've become a little bit more literal. I feel like movies in general are a little bit more literal. Um, there's there's a lot of I think because of the way we watch movies. I think sometimes, especially with television, that the the literalness of the thing is the most important thing more than the acting or the directing or the storytelling is like the, what is the tell me without any kind of mystery or anything whatsoever? What is the answer to this question? You know, tell me very specifically what all this stuff is. 
And that is not something that's always been the case. The movies I grew up on were much sort of more like letting you sort of letting you decide what attack shores off the shoulder of Orion are, you know what I mean? Like before we decide to fill in every single gap of the, the star Wars universe, like what the clone wars were or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I do think that if you've watched, you know, I think that our movie is, is just as sort of like concrete or not concrete or ambiguous or unambiguous as the movies it's inspired by movies like, um, like I said, movies like Parallax View or a movie like The Conversation, you know, these movies, there's, you know, but I just feel like also, I don't know. I haven't seen Archive 88 or 81 or whatever it's called, but I hear that there's, it's, it is the thing that I've just heard that it's like that, that the ending is what you think it is. And I'm like, what's that's not fun. I'd be mad yeah, if I watched yeah. ten episodes of something and I got to the end. They're like, wait, it really is just like a. It's usually witches, right? It's probably witches. I haven't seen it, so I'm not spoiling it because I haven't seen it. But it's always usually witches. It's always some. <laughs> it's, it's a demonic cult. It's either, it's either witches or the Illuminati, <laughs> and that's the most boring fucking yeah. thing in the world in 2022 to me. I don't know, like, not saying that if anyone does it, it's automatically boring. I'm just saying that for me, in the kind of stories what the, the if it was witches or or the illuminati which it usually always is right it's usually like the dudes in the it's usually like the the eyes wide shut or it's or it's or it's um around the maypole what's it um blanking on the movie oh uh, they dance around the maypole and it's like you know they remade it with nicholas cage and the bees um Wicker oh, Man. Uh, Wicker the Man. Wicker Man. Yeah, it's Wicker Man. It's yeah. like Wicker Man, you know, like which uh, Hot Fuzz was ripping off, riffing on. Um, right, right. Yeah. So I wasn't, I I didn't really, I had no intention of pissing people off, but I do feel like, you know, if that kind of having to do a little bit of work is enjoyable to you, or if you like the idea of, I don't know. I mean, I should ask you guys what was, I guess we, we would spoil the movie if we did this, but I guess I'm just, it's fine. We, we, we end up spoiling everything on accident. Anyway, the problem that I run into with this is that I keep having this conversation, but it's always in situations like these where I can't really talk about the ending of the movie. Yeah. So I never really gotten a sense of like, what is it that's so, frustrating for some people you know because i mean a lot of people really really like the ending you know there's a lot of people the people who like it like really like it like think it's like the greatest um like us like like john and i well that's good i like that i thought i was going to get a hundred percent closure and then i didn't i i was it was well done yeah and i feel that in order to uh understand the movie you really have to understand jacob's psychology and get inside yeah. his head if you understand how he's functioning you will understand the movie better hey you mean yeah i think it's a little bit more of a maybe things aren't as complicated as they seem but um i kind of look at it like big trouble in little china that movie has a lot of ambiguity at the end because 
for if you've seen it, I'm assuming you guys have seen that movie. Mm. One of my favorites. We love Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> the monster is in the back of his semi truck at the end of the movie. Does the monster get him? Does the monster? What happens? Does Jack Burton die in the next scene after the credits roll? I don't know. It's you don't know. It's left open to the viewer. So <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. I don't know. You, you guys are very stone faced. So um. <laughs> <laughs> keyword stones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was. I mean, yeah. It's well. That's. I think that broadcast is a great movie for being high. It's a great movie for being high because. It doesn't matter what I show you in the third act, because by then you you're already on your own trip of what you know, what you think is what you think is going on, and I think that that is way more interesting than witches or Illuminati. <laughs> it is a hundred percent. What it? Yeah, it's. I mean, the intrusions are kind of like a way for James to kind of escape his grief, and that's the thing. He gets sucked into the conspiracy world. Yeah. I mean, that's also, I mean, how you view the ending also says a lot about how you view those kind of mysteries and those kind of conspiracies and like what you, you know, I think it speaks a lot to like the fact that maybe people are a lot more prone to, you know, the people who maybe were frustrated with the ending were a lot more prone to are prone to believing conspiracies, you know, like believing them fully or like what, or what they want to have happen. But for me, the movie is a character study, you know, like I said earlier, it starts as like parallax view or blowout and kind of ends up becoming, you know, in the same way that blowout abandons the political thriller two thirds of the way through the movie, because basically the last third of the movie and, you know, skip ahead if you've never seen blowout, but the last third of the movie, (laughs) you know, who did it, you know, why there was no grand conspiracy. It was literally John Lithgow just being like a psychotic person. So this, so the last Mm -hmm. third of the movie is essentially a, like a slasher movie or like a crime, a crime, like slasher movie with, with him sort of trying to, like John Travolta is still thinks he's in a conspiracy thriller, but, but we're, we're over here with John Lithgow having this like serial killer movie, you know? And, uh, and that's just a really interesting form. So this, so broadcast has a form of like, well, the movie is very specifically designed to be like, you're getting involved in a mystery the same way that he is. And you want to really feel it because the movie is really subjective. But at a certain point, the movie has to start sort of like, cause we're getting inside of his own reality and his sense of reality is getting distorted. So in order to stay in that subjective surreality that he is, that he's sort of falling himself into escape from this grief, it becomes like a character study of like what this kind of like grief and trauma and using our obsessiveness, you know, and, and, and every, I think it's a universal thing of like people's being prone to being sucked into these kind of things and to, and to using them to sort of supplant, you know, real growth and healing. I mean, if you think about like broadcast intrusion, like 
there's a scene where he meets with a woman after the support group for the grieved people, uh, people who have survived suicide. And she is a very attractive woman. And she says, and she's a really cool and they get along and she's like, Hey, do you want to go hang out and watch some VHS tapes? And he says, no, if he hadn't said no. And he was like, I'm going to heal with you together. And we're going to learn how to do this together. We're going to fuck our way through this. There would be no movie. That's not fun. Right. It's like, um, there's no movie there. So it's like a 20 minute short film about a guy who goes to <laughs> support group. Um, <laughs> And that's really where, and that is a horror movie trope of like the classic horror movie trope where there's the guy at the, there's like the old man who's either the caretaker or the gas station attendant or what have you, who's like, well, that old house, there were lots of murders in there. Or, you know, no one ever knew what happened with those people. Don't go up there. And the, and the teenagers are in the RV and they're like, well, we're going to go up there anyway, because fuck you, we're in a movie. Um, and that's, it's like a harbinger of like, of like, if you turn around now or you're going to be the victim of a horror movie. And that is essentially what happens in this movie, except the further we go into the horror of it, the further inside of his own psyche we go, you know what I mean? And it starts to, and, and the, and the dream reality starts to bend and to where he doesn't really even know what the truth is anymore. And I feel like maybe there was a little bit of subconscious like reflection of the way that the world is right now where like, like an objective truth is really, really hard to come by. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, knowing, definitely. especially during the pandemic, which is when I was editing the movie, you know, and making a lot of sort of structural changes to it. It's like, there was no, we didn't know. I mean, we still like sort of marvel at the idea that there were people who, believe that they knew what the answer was we were still wiping down our takeout cartons you know what i mean like and that was just you know it's like that just proved not to be a thing um that because we were convinced that there was like a 50 percent chance you're getting covid if you did that so you know and just and just with everything in social media and like the differences of you know and the polarization and everything like that even just knowing what like like base reality is has become really, really difficult. And that made its way into the movie. And I think that is part of like the updating of that, of that form. And I think that that may just be too frustrating because you just may just want to watch Ted Lasso, which I totally get. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) (laughs) Jason Sudeikis is great. The other thing about movies now is it like when you guys were growing up and when I was growing up to like, like something like, horror movies it was a specific kind of person who chose to do that right like it was like it was a niche thing and it was like if your thing was um you know if your thing was like mike nichols movies you probably weren't you know seeking out like midnight screenings of sam raimi movies you know or or you know last house on the left was not your movie. If like Kramer versus Kramer was your other favorite movie, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) but now it feels like there's a little bit more of this need for every movie to be for everybody. Whereas like, whereas like there are certain kinds of movie that are just for certain people. And I think that's okay. And we have such a wide selection. We have so many different things to choose from and we have 
we have we have access to every kind of movie that like you can get real specific about about what you you want from something and the idea that like a movie like broadcast signal intrusion or a movie like Titan, for example the idea that that movie would have to like be for everybody and that like people were going to judge it as if like this movie was should be like for me like every other movie is for me but Titan 10 15 years ago would have been a movie you'd have to go seek out you know and i have to go to like if i was in new york i'd have to go to like the angelico or like you know you know in la i'd have to go to like you know the landmark or something or the or the new art to watch this like when i went to new art to see um antichrist that's not a movie for everybody but because of this sort no, of definitely not but because everything kind of comes through the same box now there is a feeling that everything has to be the same. Like it has to, it's like, well, is everything, everything either has to be for me. Whereas like the reason the horror was cool was because, and the reason that it's such a, like, like a, there's so much solidarity there is because it was an outcast genre for a while. Now it's one of the only genres that makes money, but it was an outcast genre. It was a genre where like, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, evil Dead Two. that was like, the V I didn't watch that on like a new version of the movie. I watched that on a VHS tape that said evil dead two and marker on it. Right. Like <laughs> that was, or evil dead or whatever. It was like, these were the things that were like traded back and forth. And it was something that was like, Oh my God, you got to see this, but you're not going to give it to the guy who just wants Burt Reynolds. You know what I mean? Um, although I'm, I'm the guy who right. wants both. I'm the guy who wants all these things, but I'm not everybody, you know? And I think that, <laughs> If broadcast and intrusion works for you, then that's dope. And if it doesn't, maybe it wasn't for you. You know, um, I think Titan is the best movie I saw in the last year. Uh, some people think it's a fucking violation of movies, so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Did you guys see that movie? By the way, did you see that? No, I, I know of it, but I've never seen it. Holy shit, it's good. Fucking a, it is one of the gnarliest movies too you should it's not it there ain't no joke in that movie that's like a like i said i'm not very squeamish but i was i was you know grip my teeth for parts of that movie it's 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 intense it feels like if gasper noe was a feminist you know um yeah dope movie sounds like something we should watch and review john <laughs> yeah <laughs> he also just spit out two movies what the fuck is up with that i didn't i was i was i've been at a loop Gaspar Noe just has two new movies. I didn't even know. I last one I saw was Cash was Climax, which was fucking awesome. I gotta ask you one more question about broadcast, and uh, you might not want to give me an answer, but I gotta ask: Was the freaker keeping someone locked up in his house? What? <laughs> I I mean, was he? I don't know. What do you think? I think he is. He seems like the kind of person that would keep somebody locked up in his house. <laughs> I, it could be. It could be. We know as much as James does, and it could be, or it could be uh, his annoying. It could be James's mind room. making the noises too. It could be his annoying roommate or a <laughs> nagging spouse. You know, you never know. Uh, it could be lots of things. That's the thing. He, the thing with conspiratorial thinking is that you're gonna. You know, not all conspiracies are, are ludicrous. 
Some of them are actually true. Right. And that's what's that's what's kind of fun about it. But but at the same time, some are ludicrous when you just when you think about what actually was the case. Uh, I hope they never figure out who did the broadcast or who did the Max Hedger incident. Because that would be such a bummer to know. Like, I really never want to know that. It's um, one of those things you want to know, but you don't want to know. I mean, I think my movie tells you who did it. I mean, it shows you. I mean, it's just how much you believe it. Because you're in the you're in that purview of the problem is is that Harry is so likable that he is such an empathetic uh, actor and character that like I just find that I want to like support him and whatever he wants to do and I think that, that maybe has an issue with that's really the issue if you have an issue with broadcast it's Harry Shum Jr is too handsome and likable to be in a movie it's just <laughs> it's just it's just it's just impractical this doesn't make any sense. You want to care for him, but he could also be an unreliable narrator as well. Yes, for sure. Uh, I'll just have to leave that up to the. That is one aspect of the the freaker having someone locked in his upstairs is a really interesting idea. Uh, I may or may not have already thought about that, but yeah. And uh, I know you have Night Sky coming up. Uh, do you have any other projects coming up as well? Uh, just that. I mean, I have a lot of other stuff I'm working on, but nothing really super concrete at this moment. But, yeah. I don't know. And, it's a uh, weird time. And uh, where, where can people keep up with you on social media to keep up with your projects? I'm not really – I mean, I have accounts, but I'm not really that – I mean, I, I think there's, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not very <laughs> active on it. I'm not very active on uh, the old uh, social media. It's, uh, but now that Elon bought it, Twitter, I'm all about it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, uh, I don't know. Today there was news that he might not be buying. Oh, it. yeah. No, or I don't know. The buy I, was on hold or something. I'm just uh, I'm just joking. I have no opinion on that whatsoever. <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, I wish I could say yeah. You can find me at at Jacob Gentry, or you can because you can. I just don't. I'm not on there. Um, but yeah, my handles are all the. It's like the longest and, uh, anyone's ever took to answer that question is what I just did. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't remember who it was, but somebody else kind of like gave an even longer winded answer to kind of along the same line. Say, I'm not really on social media. What do they say? What do they say? I need, I need, an, I need another thing to say. I never, I always forget to like lock down a, like a scripted kind of thing to say. Um, they, they, they just say we're like, not big on social media. If you're good on Google, you can find anything about anybody. I mean, you guys that's, got my email address. True. You guys contacted yeah. me. It's not like I gave you my info. Um, unless there's like a patient zero for like the like horror community, like giving everybody, you know, my, my email. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully if anybody's listening to this point, they're like, well, deep, deep into that cush. So 
they're just <laughs> blind as fuck right now. Like just, you know, they're too far gone. E- even if you had social media handles, they'll, they'll forget them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you think someone's gonna put the joint down, take out a pen, and write out like my fucking <laughs> no shit. I'm a, like that's also a bummer. I'm so glad that like Steven Spielberg doesn't have or James Cameron doesn't tweet because that would be fucking the worst to like know what he had to I don't know. Like, know too far what, above that. I know. I don't want to know what James Cameron thinks about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp's trial. Like I don't <laughs> fucking care. Yeah, right, I don't, don't want right. to know what anybody I respect. Huh? I said right. I, I agree with you. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, because I was thinking about it. I said it to my friend the other day, I was like, man, William Goldman would have been insufferable on Twitter. And then that made me start thinking, I'm like, man, I'm so glad that, like, William Friedkin, I guess William Friedkin does tweet, doesn't he? The only person I would say is an exception to this social media rule is when I've actually seen, like, articles, like, collecting it all, is Paul Schrader. I am very glad he is on social media. But that's all very, his social media is on brand, I think. Like his social media accounts are mwah, chef's kiss. You guys like Paul Schrader? <laughs> Paul Schrader fans? Um, oh yeah, yeah. He his his Facebook. You ever seen like some of his Facebook posts? Incredible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely fucking hilarious. I love it when people get old and D A F G or no, that's I didn't D G A F. Don't give a fuck. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, because that shit is tight when they do not give a fuck. Man, I, there's nothing better than a surly old Hollywood person just free from worrying about going full Brian Cox and just like, here's what I think about everybody I've ever worked with. <laughs> <laughs> we're big, we're, we're yep, big Brian not Cox fans too. Yeah. yeah. He's incredible in everything. He's amazing. He's amazing. Uh, I actually think I don't think he's my favorite Hannibal Lecter, but he's definitely a lot higher up than I think most people would rank him. I think he's very high up. Yeah, absolutely. Hannibal. I think Manhunter in general is underrated. Manhunter is a huge influence on broadcasting intrusion in terms of style and in terms of aesthetic and in terms of like getting inside of you know because that's one of the few movies that like it sneaks up on you how unhinged the the main character is becoming like he is yeah absolutely i mean whereas they really really focused that on that in hannibal the, the tv series the first couple the first time you watch manhunter you may not even notice how fucking crazy William Peterson's character is. Oh yeah. What's the what's the character's name? William. Um, uh, sorry, blanking on his name. Anyway. Um, um, oh damn it! It's uh. I, I really Will. like what it's Will something. I can't remember. I really like Mu- Will. Yeah, Will. Will Graham. Not Will Money. That's unforgiven. Will Graham. Sorry. Um, Will Graham in Hannibal is just like well, we go. We literally go inside of like visions of yes, that. Yeah. But way that Michael Mann does it is he has him like talking at a v. A VCR, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's a lot of scenes in that movie where it's just him and a VCR in a hotel room, like, and he's yelling at him. He's like, I got you, you son of a bitch. Oh, you went in there and you, oh, 
oh, you wanted to use the piece of the mirror to, you know, it's like, he's like yelling at, he's like, I know, he's like having a conversation with this guy through a videotape. And that is like, I don't know. I feel like that was actually like a huge inspiration for part of, uh, for broadcast. That's awesome. Which, because I just, because that was something that, because nobody makes movies like Michael Mann and to be able to make, you know, him like being a weirdo, like psychotic freak in front of a, a TV is, is pretty great. Yeah. And, uh, we want to thank you again for joining us today. Uh, we both love BSI. We enjoy getting to talk to you about it and, uh, we'll have to have you on again after night sky comes out. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's not so much a horror movie, but yeah. Um, it's very different, very, very different movie. Uh, but, uh, I really appreciate you call it BSI. Cause that was actually, I really pushed to just have the movie title be that because I just thought that was cool. I even made like a little title screen yeah. for it, but, but, uh, hence I do, I mean, I, you, the title's fine, but like, I do think BSI, I appreciate that. And that was essentially what we called it I mean, exclusively it when we we're making it. We just haven't done it a lot lately. So I really, really appreciate you doing that. Um, it's cool. Thank And thank you for having me on. It's been a blast. I really no, appreciate it's a, it's, it. It's a pleasure, man. I, I, I liked the signal. And then uh, I watched uh, Broadcast Signal Intrusion with my wife. And she actually came in on one of the segments where it was one of the intrusion segments. She, she literally walked in and saw the bot and went, Ew, what the fuck are you watching? <laughs> and I was like, you want me to rewind it? Come watch it with me. We watched it. It was good. I was like, I'm going to reach out to this guy. I don't know if it's availability, but he would be, this is a movie we would like to talk about. We like, we like movies for the thinking man. If we don't, dumb movies are fun, but we like the movies that, yeah, we could sit around and have a cup of coffee with five people that watch that movie an hour from now. And we could have like a debate and a discussion about it. Those are the types of movies we like to talk about on this podcast. Yeah, and it's got a it's got a Alice in Wonderland vibe to it too. So it, it's kind of fun, even if you decide not to pay attention to the plot. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's you know by design, like it's you kind of going down a wormhole, and there's visual like there's things of visual and and aesthetic like interest. If if you just kind of want to trip out on something, you know that was, and and it happens more frequently as it goes on. Just like when you start getting high, like if you, if you were to just like really just start getting a good buzz on at the beginning, by the time you're just like seeing fucking double and like, just, you know, out of your head, <laughs> by the time you're really starting to like question your own reality, you know, like, like, like ice cube and Friday when he's like, do I still look high? You know? And he's like rubbing his shirt. <laughs> um, by the time you get, by the time you get in, by the time you get well, well into that, like, tripping out then i feel like there's there's some there's some visual goodies for you so i'm hoping that it'll be I like a el topo i was i'm hoping that it'll be like a holy mountain or el topo kind of thing where like people you know they can you know maybe 20 years from now they'll like watch it at like midnight and like get really high and like trip out on it you know like 2001 that'd be awesome you know <laughs> contemplate <laughs> the universe <laughs> And, uh, yeah, contemplate the universe and like how fucking crazy psychotic the idea of a Max Hedrum character is in the first place. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Sally Sparks, <laughs> Sally Sparks. You could write your own Sally Sparks show. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Thanks guys. <laughs> That'll be the it. spinoff. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Take care. <laughs> All right. Peace. Peace. 
shit, I didn't realize you packed the ball. Or the ball got me. Damn, dog. Are you recording? Yeah. <laughs> we hit the wrap up, dog. <laughs> so, uh, I guess I guess Drew's going to rip this bong while I uh, wrap this show up. That's right. So, uh, <laughs> thanks to all the horror hounds and smokers out there for the tuning in. And uh, thank you for Jacob Gentry for joining us today. Uh, make sure to tune in next week. Uh, we have director and writer of Renapal, John Stevenson, joining us. And uh, make sure to follow us on social media at High on Horror 420. And that's on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Zigzag Raps. I don't know what else. <laughs> Everywhere, basically. Everywhere. 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 So we don't have a uh, we don't have a Snapchat though. <laughs> we don't have a Snapchat. I don't think we make need sure one to at this subscribe point. to our premium snaps. <laughs> at this point, Snapchat's dead anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I never really used it. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway, make sure to go to our website highonhorror.com and sign up for our newsletter, and you'll get the newest episodes and guest announcements sent to your inbox. And uh, you can also uh, leave us a. PPA question, Puff Puff ass there as well, and you can also email those to high on horror 420 at gmail.com. And uh, I guess that'll about wrap her up. Catch you later. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>